Hey there, and welcome to the Six of Swords. This is episode 12. We have a very special guest with us this episode. This is Christopher Loring Knowles. He is known as the author of Our Gods Wear Spandex and the, what you might call, um, you know, it's not the official title, but it is pretty much, in my opinion, the official X-Files go-to episode guide and structure understanding. The Complete X-Files is also another one. And that's something that's dear to both of our hearts, as you'll uh, hear through at this show. It's just a really good episode. Um, I try to think about what would I want to hear when I'm listening to someone talking with someone. When I talk with other people, that's part of what I do when I ask questions. And also, I rely a lot on my Pisces rising. I very much am... Um, channeled and inspired and possessed by the need for certain um, uh, imminences to become standing waves. And now that I've confused you more, excellent. I do consider myself one of those liminal figures that you'll hear about during this discussion. It's not something I felt the need to pop up and say uh, in the midst of such things. And there are things that just didn't get um, touched on <laughs> at certain points. Like, there's only so much time, you know, but there's always more time for more things. And it's funny because I might even have mentioned some of the things that I felt that we missed right now, but I <laughs> as it were, they are not coming to mind. So you'll see that there is a further, uh, there is not just a, but there is further work to be done. Of course, speaking of further work, the show is around because and exists for you. And it's around because of you. And this is the part in the show where those who are executive and associative executive producers get their names and credits read and any notes that they want to send in. And all of the credits that you get for the show go towards your character for the value for value role playing game. So as this show builds wings, because we jumped off the cliff and built the wings as we jumped, this is building itself. I've pioneered the value for value role playing game aspect. Of course, a great time to say thank you to the Podfathers. And that is the way that you can see your value built into a different ongoing structure. Whereas other programs have the Knights and the Dames, we have the characters you can build. You can even build multiple characters, but one thing at a time. So there's the show intro. I hope you're looking forward to this episode. I think it's... It's nice. I'm gonna say that it's a it's a nice it's a it's a good episode. He's a good it's a good episode. Chris is great. I really gotta say I love what he brings to the table, and I have a deep appreciation for his energy in this world. And I gotta say, guys, we are really lucky to have him. All right. Well, if that's not an intro, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> okay guys enjoy the show hey welcome back to the six of swords this is a podcast about art spirituality and healing and with us tonight on episode 12 we have a fellow bostonian very special guest and a fellow man of letters and his name is christopher loring knowles he is the author of the eagle award-winning our gods wear spandex the secret history of comic book heroes <laughs> excuse me co-author of the complete x-files behind the series the myths the movies and the secret history of rock and roll the mysterious roots of modern music he was an associate editor and columnist for the five-time eisner award-winning comic book artist magazine as well as a writer and reviewer for the uk 
music magazine, Classic Rock. He has appeared on ABC's 2020 and VH1's Metal Evolution in several radio shows, including Man Cow in the Morning, National Public Radio, and The Voice of America. He has also appeared in several documentaries, such as Wonder Woman, Daughter of Myth, and The Man, The Myth, Superman. He was invited to lecture on science fiction, mysticism, and mythology at the legendary Eslin Institute at Big Sur, California in 2008 and 2009. He blogs regularly on the Secret Sun and occasionally on the Solar Satellite. His first novel is called He Will Live Up in the Sky and will be released in November. That's this November 2019. Guys, welcome to the show, Christopher Laurie Knowles. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> Man, gosh. <laughs> Well, that was a good show. Have a good night. Uh, no, this is cool. Um, let's start off talking about what I think a lot of people who are going to listen to this, even a few years, will increasingly fail to appreciate what life was like before the very medium, which is allowing them, right? That whole, the medium is the message kind of thing. It's even more meta almost. But what, what, do you, what can you tell us about what big things that people should really remember about what it was like before you know, that real mid-90s super saturation and now 20 years later, cell phones in the pocket saturation. As we go forward and see this trend, what's important to remember about before? In, in whatever gestalt or zeitgeist, I think you understand the intimation of what I'm trying to get across. That's where we, I think we should start tonight, Chris. What do you want to, what do you want to say to that? That's an awfully big question. <laughs> um, I mean, everything was different. Things have totally changed now. The world is completely different. Um, it's completely different in ways that people don't appreciate. Uh, people don't understand how much has changed and, and, and matter of fact, how much we've lost in, in many ways. Um, things are not, things aren't as important as they were before. <clears throat> Everything was available 24 hours a day and so on and so forth. We didn't cycle through things as quickly. But then again, it's just a very strange time continuum because in some ways we cycle through things more quickly, but in some ways we cycle through things more slowly. It's, um, it's a very strange world. Um, we didn't have these uh, insane uh, battles on social media. Um, people were not being manipulated as badly. Uh, in, in many ways. I mean, I guess they were being manipulated through other means, like through mass media. Um, I, I feel that uh, people were much more engaged in certain ways, but in some ways they didn't have the access that the internet offers. So it's very easy to get onto the internet and it's very easy to, you know, for instance, publish a book or to do a podcast or to do a, a, a YouTube video. But the uh, audience has become so atomized, and so you know their attention spans are much shorter these days. Um, that we we see a lot of people acting inappropriately, acting badly, in order to um, maintain you know that that attention. And I think it's warped people's uh, brains in, in some ways. I think it's warped our consciousness. Um, you know, there's been a lot of interesting studies that, that social media is, has been a net negative, that um, it increases depression, it increases anxiety, I mean, even increases insomnia. So 
you know, it's very much a two-edged sword. Um, I, I will say that in, in many ways, things were maybe more exciting <laughs> in some ways than they were, uh, than they are today, um, be, just because they weren't as available. You know, you had to wait for things. You had to wait for movies. You had to wait for TV shows. You couldn't just binge them all in one sitting. Um, you, you know, you weren't constantly granted this access to, to your, your heart's content, which I, I think has made people discomfited in some ways. I, I think, you know, we need things to look forward to. We need things to attain. We need things to work towards. And that, that kind of constant availability and the ease of availability, I think, has changed, um, you know, our standards and our expectations in, in many ways. So uh, things are much different today. And, um, you know, I must say that I'm, I'm, I'm very nostalgic for the early days of, of the Internet, you know, America Online and, the, you know, the dial-up with a 24 BPS modem. I mean, I was online in the early 90s. <clears throat> so, you know, I just remember things being much different. You know, I remember it being incredibly exciting, too. It was like those dopamine hits were pretty intense. But, um, you know, I just think it, it's changed. And the audience has changed and the availability has changed. And, you know, you don't have the sort of self-selecting geeky, nerdy kind of group of people that you did back then. <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of text and subtext in uh, what that, that was a very detailed answer. Um, I couldn't possibly begin to unpack everything right now. Um, but let's just say that um. I guess what I'm trying to look for is there's there's a definite, you know, the German language, different languages have different abilities to express different nuances of the metaphysic or the experienced reality. And I'm trying to figure out what one of the big differences. You mentioned excitement, and that's that's a that's that's definitely true because our perception, our main filters can now be clogged and clogged and clogged and you know, novelty is robbed of its charm and now it's just become almost an addiction. And there's all these other implications from that. But I'm wondering what this, there seems to be like life was more of a dream or some kind of like, what's a, a word, like a kind of like something we can tangibly grok to express what it was like that now it's definitely, there's something harder or sharper or something now. That's what I, I really hope we can I, I think what it is, I, you know, you had more time with your own thoughts. You had more time away from the grid. You had more time away from the, the system and, and from other people's input. And, you know, the constant noise that you, you see and hear on, on social media. So, you know, you had more time to think to yourself. You know, it's not like this constant Borg song that we have now. And that's really, you know, the way I sort of describe it is that it is, it is like a Borg song. And I think that, you know, if you, if you can't separate, if you can't learn to separate yourself from it, like get out in nature, get outside, you know, leave the phone at home, get out, get out, walk your dogs or just walk in the woods or just get away from the system and, and the city and the people and the, the media and the electronics and the, and the electronic smog and the electronic pollution yeah. and the Wi-Fi. You know, and get away from that uh, and, and spend some time with yourself and spend some time with your thoughts. 
you know, it will change the way, you know, when you talk about dreaming, I mean, it'll change the way you dream. Um, yes, absolutely. You know, get outside, get, get air. Uh, I think a lot of people tend to, um, you know, there's a, there's a definite temptation to attach yourself to your phone or to your, to your computer and be constantly looking for those hits. But, you know, I think you said if you get away from that, you're going to see, you, you'll, you'll have a much greater perspective. You'll be able to look at the world online and the world of social media with much greater perspective. If you get away from it, if you get out into, into the world, like I said, if you can get out into nature where you are, that's great. Um, get outside on a, on a stormy night, get outside on a rainy night, get outside on a snowy night, get outside. You, you yep. don't feel necessarily comfortable. <laughs> get outside when you can experience the you know the, the yes. fullness of, of nature and, and the weather you know i think the weather is really important oh so, without a doubt yeah and that's um, coming from new englanders of course yeah well i mean i spent a lot of time by myself when i was a kid I, I really did i spent a lot of time just walking or riding my bike i mean i used to ride my bike for miles and i used to walk for miles you know i'd go into you know after school i'd take the subway into boston and just walk around just walk around the city and i did the same thing you know when i came to new york after work cuz i was working in new york after work i would just walk around the city you know and i i just think getting away from everything and everybody and getting away from the media and you know like i said turning your phone off turning your twitter off turning this and that off and just experiencing the world the way it's supposed to be experienced i think is really important um i agree and that's a key phrasing right there that the way it's supposed to be experienced because i think that's what we're trying to say ultimately uh this what's the cost of this new distraction this big neon you know angler fish that's what we got going on right in front of us because you know it's nice and shiny. That's great. But is, is shiny always good? Is the candy being offered by, you know, is, is Bitcoin created by a cartoon? Wait, I'm going a little too far out now, but let's come back in because it's actually completely germane. But the point is, is that what are we actually losing when we enter into this realm of using these tools that are so sped up, that are so, I don't know, alien to everything that we can say we've experienced and at least what we can appeal to is 6,000 years of history, right? If not 60,000, if not greater. Like what's, what, you know, the real cost here, I think is something that what's happening to our actual physiological structure, if that's all people can get. But ultimately you, you hit the nail on the head with that dreaming aspect. What's happening to our actual consciousness as it's manifesting in this world what what's this kind of thing doing doesn't it seem like it's kind of like poisoning us somewhere along the subconsciousness either um synchronicity or dream aspect of the human well you know what i mean well i think what it's doing is it's changing our perception of time like i can't believe how quickly this year has gone by and it seems like you know years are going by quicker and quicker all the time but this year was just like i thought this the year just began. I mean, I was really busy with a lot of things this year. Yes. So I, so I sort of had a reason to experience it in this kind of weird streamlined, you know, acceleration. But I think that, um, you know, our experience with media and, and, and so on and so forth is, is making that worse. You know, and it's like a lot of times I'll just see people like, celebrities or, or well-known people and all of a sudden they've gotten so old 
and and I was like, yeah, didn't weren't they like twenty years younger? Like last time I noticed these people, it's very strange. I mean, things are just moving artificially quickly, and um, I don't know if that's a question of our perceptions being distorted by all these influences, or if it's something maybe on a physics level. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I just know that it's happening. You know, I had this conversation the other day with a few people about when you get older, you have, there's this phenomenon I've thought about to express why as we age, right? People say, oh, time just gets faster. You've heard that throughout your life, I'm sure, right? Just colloquially. It's kind of an old wives' tale, time of verbiage. And um, one, one basic idea on like the real basic level is that you think about when you're, you know, six years old, you only have the memories of when you're five. Your ROM's only full with up to, you know, age five memories. So when you're six, you can spend like maybe 10 minutes a year remembering age five and back or, you know, figuratively. <clears throat> now, when you're 35, like I am now, you have 34 years and you can spend so many times per day, you know, remembering, but now you have more and more to remember from. So the stock of that grows and that time spent remembering literally is time spent in the day. So just from that, that's one way I was trying to express to myself. Maybe that's why that happens, but that's like super low level, like not woo. It's just kind of boring old your ROMs taking time to process kind of thing. I don't know. That's like one basic level, but also that gets us into the Mandela effect, the lost art of forehead sweat. It really gets us into like, what's memory, what am memory, you know, <laughs> to, to quote a good fellow, you know, what is this process that we're talking about? And isn't it, aren't we sure that it's not parallel dimensions? You know what I mean? Like what's going on with that aspect of this? Well, <clears throat> I, I just will say, from a personal standpoint, um, you know, a lot of the things that are discussed with the Mandela effect, you know, I remember them the way maybe a more conventional explanation is, but there are other things like, I mean, I will go to my grave swearing that Ed McMahon um, did the publishers clearinghouse sweepstakes, not American family publishers, which I had never heard of. That's not real. <laughs> yeah, I, it's just, it's very bizarre. And um, there are a lot of things like that. I mean, Dude, I don't really, my birthday's a Mandela effect now. It just popped up. My birthday's a Mandela effect. Yeah, I mean, it's, there are a lot of things that I don't necessarily agree with or, or you know, have experienced myself. I mean, I definitely remember Berenstain Bears because I remember when I was a kid, I was in yeah. the doctor's office and I was like, what does Berenstain mean? I remember asking my mother that. But um, there are you're a lot a, of... So are you an A guy? Is that what you're saying? Berenstain? Yeah, Berenstain, yeah. Oh, yeah? Okay. Okay. Weird. But, but the point is, is that there are a lot of other things that just have changed. And, but it's not, it's not just that. It's just like things just seem very fungible. I mean... Yeah. You know, a lot of the, you know, the work where they do the synchromistic work. Yeah. You know, it, it's just, it's bizarre because you get these sort of notions in your head and then actual facts seem to bend to. You know, bend yeah, like to, the spoon. Yeah. Yeah. Fortionic. You know, it, it's just, it's really bizarre because, you know, especially the work I've been doing for the past couple of years on the blog, um, it, it's been you know, it's been the most hyperactive and 
extreme synchronistic experience. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I mean, I've been doing it for almost 20 years, or even more than 20 years, really. And um, you're a living legend, but it's, I mean, it's like internet famous, I guess, but like you really are pretty popular when it comes to this topic. Just for if, if my listeners don't happen to know, he's kind of a big deal. Anyways, sorry, man. I just thought I should throw that in there because, like, people. The world's do... tallest midget. Um, <laughs> uh, no. They're gonna toss you now, dude. <laughs> so no, seriously. I mean, it's just it's just really bizarre because you know the work that I've been doing. It just it just seems like reality just bends to yes. these whims, and and it's not like oh well, you know, you go looking for something and you find it or or something like that. It's like. Not pareidolia, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 actual documented facts and, and like you know, Jungian stuff. Yes, it's real. Yeah. Yeah, and and like stuff that like you go you go looking for something and you don't find it, you know, and you look for it and it's not there. And then maybe a couple of weeks, month, maybe a year later, you you go look for it again, and all of a sudden it is there. And it's like, wait a minute, I was really looking for this before, and it was not there. And all of a sudden it's there, and it's just really bizarre. It's just yeah. Actual facts, you know, recorded, documented facts just, just seem to change. And I, I can't explain it. Um, but it, it, it's, it's something that I experience on a regular basis. And um, Do you think the timeline acceleration is related to the fungibility of the asset of the mind? Or as we could say, just like this Mandela effect. Do you think those two could be somehow interlinked somehow? Is that a I think it's question? possible. I mean, you know, we, you know. <laughs> It's, it's interesting because, you know, I used to be really interested in like, you know, space news and astrophysics and a lot oh, of this man. stuff. But, you know, I read these stories now and it's just so clear that people, they're just making stuff up. They just, you know, things about dark matter or about exoplanets or about black holes or, or you know, whatever you can name. It's just, Arthur C. Clarke is the new black. Yeah. I mean, you read these stories and you're just like, <laughs> you just made that up. This has no basis in reality. Oh, shit. Yes. You know, and, yes, and, yes. and it's like, you know, now the other day, somebody, somebody posted this article, like, you know, these astrophysics people are saying that there's something wrong with the universe and it's not, you know, working the way we thought it did. And it's like, no, no there's nothing wrong with the universe. There's nothing wrong with your physics. <laughs> it's like, guys, it's not wrong. us. It's the, uni it's like the principles. It's no, the children are wrong. <laughs> it's the children. <laughs> well, it sounds kind of facile, but I think it's kind of true. No, and, no, it's, um, it's, it's not facile though. It's, it's actually, it's not though. It's the, it's, it's the destruction of authority because they're, the emperor has no clothes. Well, that's the other thing too, is that we, we've really kind of taken for granted the way, you know, we're hearing like these things with Epstein and with Nexium and yeah. all this stuff, you know, uh, with the quote unquote deep state and all these kind of things that are coming out because of this big war that all these intelligence agencies are having with each other in Washington. And basically what they're doing is they're letting all the, you know, the cats out of the bag, you know, and um, it's happening so quickly that people are, I don't know if they're processing it the way that, that they should, but that collapse of authority, I think, that you mentioned, I think it's going to accelerate and I think it's going to have, you know, massive implications you know, for instance, I mean, you know, we're from Boston, uh, and I'm old enough to remember when, like, you know, the Catholic Church was the law. I mean, you know, yeah, man, it, it was like, point. 
it it ruled people's thoughts you not know, just cardinal thought, law but like yeah man like and you couldn't swear on tv i remember like damn was a big deal stores couldn't be open on sunday i mean you had all these kind of um things going on you know related to the power of the church and starting in the 80s you had you started having sort of these cases coming up with these priests and so on and then you know it, it the trickle sort of just built and built and built into the 90s and then you know the dam broke in the 2000s and that authority that um you know the church once had you know especially uh you know growing up where i was you know the the sexual mores that were so powerful and, and so inculcated you know but people didn't realize that they're being inculcated into their thoughts by by people who who, who rape boys so you know it's it's very strange because once that yeah. authority collapses it can ne- you can never get that back you know the no. catholic church is never going to get that authority back they're never going to have the kind of respect that they once had i mean i was reading an article that in south america this blew my mind that you know pentecostals now outnumber catholics in south america and i was like whoa because that was sort of their last redoubt you know that was the last fortress to the church of south america so I wonder what the Pentecostal appeal is. Oh, Pentecostalism. I mean, it's, it's basically a mystery religion. Um, if, you, if you read about the old mystery religions, um, Pente- you know, Pentecostalism is, is pretty much the same old cult activity in, in, in Christian drag. I mean, it's, you know, the speaking in tongues and the rolling around on the floor. It's very exciting. It's very sexual. It's very pent up. You know, I had a friend who was a Pentecostal, and she was the most sexualized person I've ever met in my life. And and, and I'd actually seen her at, at my reunion a, a while back, and she still is. I mean, even though she's been, you know, in the the bosom of the church, you know, for the past thirty years, but you know, she's still an intense, intensely sexual person. She just, you know, radiates that energy. So I, I think that Pentecostalism is very, um, you know, I think there's a strong erotic. Pull, and I think it's sort of the sublimation of that erotic energy. But <clears throat> no, but you answered my question. I was wondering if it was the cultivation of the sublimation. But you answered my question. I think. Yeah, I, I think it's just. Um, well, you know, from what I've heard, that there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of you know, like wife swapping and and the down low and all these kind of things with with Pentecostals that you know they're not as chaste as they would have you believe. So they're the dirty Mormons then. Uh I don't even know. It's, um, it's a, I am making a gross and broad swathing joke just to make sure everyone understands them. It's complete sarcasm for made for satirical purposes only. Well, I, you know, it's just like, I think Pentecostalism is, is very, um, you know, I, I say it's, it's like soaked in estrogen. It's, it's very, um, you know, it's feminine sexuality sort of steered in, in these, various directions but the same the same holds true with like you know the cult of Addis or the cult of adonis or the cult of isis you know these old um, mystery cults from the ancient world i mean i just wonder the sophionic if there's some kind of like if in there's some you know i mean they're obviously all individual traditions or maybe they're tied to one root but i'm wondering like the sophionic or wisdom component the actual like female you know liberated original source wisdom of true creation i wonder if there's any of that in any of those because i know that you and i both were raised methodist like or at least i was an 
I was an Easter, Christmas, sometimes Sunday school. You know what I mean? But very yeah. My 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 church was a little more hardcore than that. You know, it was like sun up to sundown kind of deal. Um, Whoa. Yeah, because my mother was um, an organist at the church, so yeah um we'd get there in the morning so she'd you know warm up with the choir and get the, the hymns ready and stuff and then we'd have sunday school for an hour and a half and then we'd have church for an hour and a half and then we would have you know coffee hour which was coffee two hours usually and then you know we'd go to my grandmother's house for dinner and then we'd have youth fellowship for two or three hours so it was like it was a marathon it was all day you know and the, and the sermons were usually um about a half hour. It, it was, um, you know, it was a different kind of Methodist church than even I think the Methodist churches at the time, you know, our, our preacher was from Kentucky and he was sort of like a hellfire and brimstone guy. And it was, you know, he's a very, cons- it wasn't fundamentalist, but it was very conservative. It was very yeah. family oriented. It was very, um, but you know, the thing that most people don't realize about the church and, and people who are outside the church is that the churches are all run by women. You might have the, the, the uh, guy up in the pulpit, but, all the work is done by the women. And that's been my experience in, in you know, churches that I've, I've been to or been members of. Yeah. The, the women run the church. I, I think that, you know, there's this weird kind of quasi-feminist talk about patriarchy and, you know, the suppressed divine feminine and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's just not true. Well, and every great man's a great woman, and it's true. Maybe men are just the external expression, and women are the behind-the-scenes expression. Yeah, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, the point is, is that church has always been um, a venue for for women. It's always been a venue in which women have ruled. It's a great point. You know, and I, 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 it's it's so bizarre to hear anybody say anything else. And you know, I mean, even like. I, you know, I've never been a member of like a sort of a fundamentalist or evangelical church, but I've been to them, you know, for, for various occasions. And you just see the same phenomenon happen. It's the women run the show. And, you know, the men might be in, in, in charge of the, the sermons or the, the liturgy or, or whatever you want to say. But, you know, the day-to-day operations, it's, um, it's a woman's world. Do you think this would be ubiquitous throughout the cultures throughout time? Because I know, I know you're, you're, I want to say you're correct in my experience. I've seen different cultures without naming any specific ones. It tends that women handle the money a lot more. They handle these behind the scenes. They're the social lubricators in a way, in some ways. So there's different, I'm wondering if this is like a ubiquitous thing. My question again is, is this a ubiquitous thing throughout aeons? Do you see, do you see what I mean? Well, if you read the, um, Okay, so if you read things like against Celsius, or, you know, Contra Celsum, you know, a lot of these documents that were written, um, you know, what, what are called apologetics, which was the early church fathers sort of answering the criticisms of, um, you know, these conservative Romans making attacks upon, you know, the early church. I mean, even back in the Roman days, you know, that was one of the criticisms that, that conservative Roman men would have of the church is like, you know, this is, this, this, your, your religion is just run by women. It's just, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not masculine. It's not manly. It's, 
it's a place where women go to be, you know, to, to be hysterical, basically. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that was a lot of the, the, you know, the criticisms that were No, made. I know, but it just sounds so, it's, it, you can imagine them actually living in those times, like, arguing that way. It's, yeah, it's definitely no internet back then. Sorry, keep yeah, going. Well, I mean, people were a lot smarter then um, than they are now. Uh, I, I, I very much believe that. I don't disagree, my friend. There's also, yeah, please continue. I mean, you know, you would have, you know, if you were a citizen, and even, you know, even a lot of slaves um, would be educated, and they'd be educated, you know, with a classical education. They'd learn logic. They'd learn, you know, what's, what's called the trivium. They'd learn how to, to reason, and they'd learn how to, you know, express themselves. And I think that, that that's definitely been lost. I mean, you know, one of the things that just, boggles my mind about Twitter is that you see so many people who work in the media or work in universities or work on television and they're all idiots and they're all just like in this constant state of apoplexy oh. and you start to realize like why you know why are we allowing ourselves to be dictated by these people that they're all crazy and they're all like basically semi semi uh, sociopathic so I, I think that um it was different back then. And, and again, it's, you know, speaking to this whole issue of time, speaking to this whole issue of, you know, it was a slower world and it was a more deliberate world and it was a more ordered world. You know, unfortunately we can never get back to that. Um, you know, no matter how much we would like to do so. And I, yeah. I think with the rise of, of robotics and, and AI. Yeah, the Aramonic forces. Yeah, the aromonic forces. I, I think that the the impulse, you know, for the human mind to degenerate even further is just going to become more and more overwhelming. I, well, I think it's like I think it's like an accelerator. I'm just making this up as I go along, Chris. I I kind of have a Pisces thing I like to do with my rising. So, like, what if it's like um, like for some people, if they go through a certain kind of like um. Let's just call it a process. It can make you a really, really good person, or it can make you a really, really more powerful what else you could have been, but you're not doing good. You get what I'm saying? So is there something to this that like, and now I'm just feeling like I, I don't want to fully express this thought, but I'll say, is there some kind of like future, not future shock thing, but is there some kind of thing that the, the actual internet, I'm just going to say this, Georgia Guidestones, internet, those who survive, those who don't. Is the internet a tool? That's the question. A tool for what, though? I mean, what do you that mean? That end goal of having a select amount of people on the planet. I'm just making, like, I really have not had. I don't it. know. You know, I, I mean, who knows? I mean, the Georgia Guidestones are very strange because. I, I meant the general idea, by the way, not specifically those. But, no, I, I understand what you're saying. But I, I think that, you know, one of the things I, I always try to point out to people. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting because we're so conditioned by the media to think otherwise. But this planet is empty. Yeah. No, um, you're so right, though. There's so much space for all of us. There's so much resources for all of us. We could do this. Yeah. And, and you know, people go, well, there's not enough groundwater. Oh, shit. Absolute nonsense. I mean, if you look at population density maps, I mean, human populations are clustered at these little corners, usually around strategic waterways where say rivers meet, you know, the ocean or, you know, the great lakes or something. Um, 
because you know the waterways were that was how trade was run and it still is in in many ways of course but you know take a flight across the country during the day or, or even better at night so you can see the houses and you can go like two hours flying across the country and not see a single light below you it's the you know the, this country is empty the world I and mean, look at canada i mean a, a lot of canada is obviously too cold but i mean here's the thing okay so we were driving up to new england right from new jersey and we're going up Route 80. You know, I hate going through Connecticut. Driving through Connecticut drives me insane. I, I don't know why. There's something about that state that just drives me insane going through it. What about so Rhode what Island? Is, Rhode Island doesn't do that to you? You know, just 95 or 84, I, I can't stand going those ways. So if I'm going to visit, so my mother lives up in New Hampshire. So if I'm going to visit her, what we'll do is we'll drive up the New York Thruway up to West Point, and then we catch the Mass Pike. Oh yeah, you know, you, you sort of you bang a right, and then you get on the Mass Pike at the beginning, you know, uh, out out in the western part of the state, and it's just it's a more scenic route. Um, it's 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 usually a lot less traffic, so it's just much more pleasant experience. But we're driving up the New York Thruway, so this is New York. This is one of the most densely populated states in the country, and we're just going forever and ever and ever without seeing anything but trees, and and. You know, right to the side of the, the, the highway, this major highway, is this dense wall of, of foliage that is so thick that you could never go through it. And I said, you know, I said to my wife, I said, you know, there could be Sasquatches and Bigfoots and all this kind of stuff running around there. And nobody would have a goddamn clue. You know what I mean? It's Stephen and, King secretly sneaks in there. He pays people to keep it off the radar. That's where he gets all his stories from. It's right behind yeah, that. I, but, you know, it's... it's it sounds, it sounds ridiculous, but it's no. like just drive through. You know, Dude. even like New Jersey. You know, the Pine Barrens is is enormous and it's empty. Maine um, has unincorporated non-town towns. They still have swaths of land that aren't even towns yet. Yeah. So the the world is empty, and and I think one of the you know the, the ways that people are controlled you know is, is through this constant scarcity mentality. Uh, what's that? Remember in the remember in the Truman Show when it says, "But no Truman, the whole world's already been explored." Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because I um, I was a big fan of uh, Lloyd P Pye's work, the late Lloyd Pye, and, and he had right said that um, uh, he said that only twenty percent of the continent of the United States has even been foot surveyed. You know what I mean? And that's just like people just walking through. So 20% of the, the land mass and the continent of the United States, so that means 80% has not been foot surveyed. That means nobody stepped foot in 80% of the continental United States. So you don't think like they don't think that like someone's done like a sweep. I, I, I'm I'm not trying to play devil's advocate even, right? I'm just wondering, like, that's an incredible thing to hear. And like it is. You know, like all the military exploits that we've had, all of the Rockefellers who have thought, you know what I'm, you see what I'm trying to question though? You know no, what I, mean? I, I I do understand what you're saying, but, but like I said, it's like, it, it's not very hard to believe when you just get on a plane in California and fly across the country. That's you know, a head first of all, you get on the, you get on a plane in Los Angeles and for three hours, you're looking at a friggin' Martian landscape below you. I mean, it's just, it's just this desolate region. Can I can I take a quick left hand turn in the conversation? Well, it's it's completely germane, but check us out. When you're flying up there, Chris, 
<laughs> and we don't have, we, we can we can go as far and as I'm going with this as we want. This is fun now. We're just doing this quick interfun mood. Um, when you're seeing, how far can you see? Like, do you ever see a horizon when you're up there in the air? What's your experience like? Just well, I was just in California a few times over the summer. Sure. And, you know, I was flying. I was flying back, and um, I I saw the horizon. And um, I did not see a curve <laughs> at all. You know, you're 50,000 feet in the air and you can see for, for hundreds and hundreds of miles and it's flat as a pancake. So, I mean, That's I don't know true. what that means. That's true. It's, it's really, it's very, you know, because it's funny because I didn't even think of it before all this flat earth stuff. That's um, so crazy. You know, you want to hear some, uh, you want to hear a fun pop uh, culture interlude here. You ever think about um, the occult? Watch this. Remember that we're talking about the horizon so that this ties all back around. You know how occult obviously goes into numerology and the numbers get really weird because they kind of like have a personality or like a, a virtue or something to them, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, we, we, this is like tricky territory. We're talking about the matrix stuff. We're talking about spoon bendy stuff here, mercury. And so when John Lennon who is obviously tuned into something, right? Um, not even by virtue that he's like a sacrifice victim of like some MK Ultra shit. Like his whole life's like this guy is a star, like David Bowie style, like uh, Jimmy Page style. Okay, here's the point. Number nine, number nine, number nine. He repeats it over and over again. He's talking about the Horizon Nine. Like, take the number nine multiply it you know the trick that happens with a nine how it always reduces to a nine again and the same thing with adding but for the inverse now it always reduces to that number now here's the point with your perception no pun intended <laughs> and as on when the sunday that we are on the circumpunct expresses this virtue perfectly no matter how far you go you always right there you are you always go further the horizon nine number nine now it's further, Chris. Number nine. Hey, look, there it is. Let's go get it. Number nine. So he's expressing within the word horizon, using a beautiful one of the quadrivium music to express this crazy abstract idea. But that's one cool way to understand what John Lennon's saying when he's using that otherwise seemingly inane repetition. Well, I always thought, you know, myself, that I, I always thought that had something to do with the, uh, the Council of Nine, you know, because they, they'd been around for... Oh, what, what the white album's 68. So the, the yep. nine were first, you know, contacted, quote unquote, at least publicly in 52. But I think, you know, I think I presented pretty good evidence on the blog that it was actually in the, in the late 40s. So it's 21 years before revolution number nine is recorded. So I, I don't know. It, it really makes me wonder because there there's so many different um, bizarre side streets, and 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 it's a, a really a question of the the Beatles were you know they were dabblers and they and they sort of had you know they put their finger in every in every pie you know it didn't necessarily mean that they were involved in something it didn't necessarily mean that they had any real knowledge of something but they always liked to just sort of put their stamp on a lot of things and I always wondered if he had some awareness or he heard something about the nine because you know i believe that at that point the very point in time that the nine were sort of insinuating themselves into the whole star trek world because um i uh you really sort of see um versions of them 
in the first in the first series in the first season of Star Trek. So I mean that's just the way I've always sort of looked at it. But you know it could just be you know nine's very well known number in mysticism and, and numerology and stuff. You know the thing that I always go with you know as far as numerology is concerned though was you know Bob Marley had said you know when you play with numbers that the devil wins because numbers are forever and and I think that that's you know a very wise thing to point out. I think that's that, absolutely brilliant. That's yeah, utterly. Fantastic. And can I just say that's up there with better, and that goes with this actually. We'll see how this is actually crazy how this ties in. Better Morg than Borg. I literally could pop, I could get that. I love, Chris, I cannot tell you how much I actually quote that to people. Like, I love that quote. So it goes with the similar thing, I think. It's like maybe there's something about living naturally and soul based. And I want to talk tonight about compassion and animals and then returning to actual, like, meeting people knowing people in real you know spaces and getting away from the internet where we are the devil wins with the numbers because maybe numbers are the internet well the internet is all based on numbers right on that's right that's true and the binary and all these sort of tricks that um you know construct that world so i i think that's very apt you know the trickster is one thing I definitely want to talk about. I'm sorry, you, you mentioned tricks, and the tricksters are a, a very. I think that there are a lot of people out there turning to, like, especially like in this age of like Catholicism being decimated, to say the least, if not multiple decimated. Um, like Ethan Orthodox, he seems to be a path that people are turning to, but basically, it seems that like. Mm, sorry, I'm trying to say a few things at once here. <laughs> I gotta reel this back in. Um, let's see if I can get back to this. Anyways, excuse me. I I I went on to a tangent on a tangent, and I got ahead of myself there. It happens. <laughs> Where was I starting to go before the Eastern Eastern Orthodoxy thing? I, if you could remind me, there's a. Well, we were talking about numbers and the traps and numbers and all that kind of thing. Right after that. Between the, mm, oh, it's okay. Well, I don't know. You you cycled through about five different <laughs> topics. There was only two. I swear to God, it's okay. We'll get back to it. I, I. Well, you you wanted to talk about animals and compassion. Oh, I really did cycle through a few things. My mind kind of does that once in a while. You you'd never notice. You 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 would never believe me, Chris. But yeah. um, <laughs> I really I'm trying. It's exciting, you know. It's the, the I really do feel like I connect with a sense of wonder in the world, and that's part of. I have a lot of enthusiasm, to say the least. Um. So yeah, let's go back to like the that's why I was talking about that. Um let's talk about how one of the side effects that we're losing is that like real time like you wouldn't like walk like you wouldn't walk up to someone and talk the way like have the Twitter you know that kind of epithet almost. So it's like we what what can we talk about like the the impact and need maybe for long-term thinking like where are we going to be in 5 10 this year's what is the real life scenario we at least want to see in this world that we can control with the resources we have? What are we going to do to maximize that human viability via that kind of that emotive quotient, if you will? Right. I hope that's a I hope that's a solid enough question to tie in all those things that I was trying. To I don't know if there's a we in that question. I mean, or in the answer to that question, I think it's very much up to the individual. I don't think that a kind of collective effort can can address that. I think that you're really talking about a situation where 
it's really up to individual effort and it's it's up to individuals connecting well i'm glad you said that we as those who would listen to the show who would t- undertake this inner work that would make the world um, with the caveat that you're putting on it well that that's what i'm saying I, you know it's not something it's not a we answer it's it's really a question of, of people i see um see because we's you know groups can be very fake you know because groups can they they rely on consensus you know a group always relies on consensus and a consensus is compromise and compromise is is necessarily an artificial construction because it's an agreement it's 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 a formula it's it's something in which people um argue or negotiate in order to reach this consensus but if it's just you and i talking or if it's you and 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 i and jennifer talking we we don't necessarily have to reach that consensus because we're interacting on an individual level so there's always like a give and take and a push and pull but it's It's not something that we have to create this consensus uh, to to have a conversation but i i think in, in group situations it does because i mean what is a group going to discuss you know when you get a group of people together what's why are they together you know wh- what has brought them together why are they there what are they going to say to each other what do they believe no, that's um, a good question and i'll say this like and i i don't know your lady's name but i'd say the same we'd include her as well as jennifer uh do you what's your lady's name vicky my oh, wife she does the art You're, yeah i don't do trust me from so I'm still bacheloring and I've, I've gotten my friend Dan's like, dude, dude, you said girlfriend. It's my wife. I'm like, what? And he's like, wife. I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm learning this adulting hashtag. Right. But no, I appreciate that. She does art. She's an artist, right? A visual artist. Mm-hmm. Very painter. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, surrealist painter. I, um, I, I, I have seen some of her animal paintings. I think mm-hmm. she does animals as some of her subjects. Mm hmm. So that ties us back around to like, all right, it's not, we can't save the world. We can save the part of the world that we control individually is kind of like a, another way of saying what we're saying right now. Yeah, but. Uh, and save the world's problematic terming. I'm just bringing it down. Yeah, I, the, the world, the world cannot be saved, you know, right. I mean, because what is the world? Um, I, I think that the you know the world being saved. I, I think that's um, that's almost like a form of mind control. You know, I like what you're saying. Form. It's like the hero complex or something. Well, it, it's it's a it's a question. It's a problem that is presented to you, and it, like I said, it requires consensus and it requires compromise and it requires surrender and it requires negotiation. And, and I think that. Otherwise, you can't answer those questions. So we also have the problem that, you know, external forces are becoming so overwhelming in so many ways that... Oh, my God, yeah. You know, I mean, can we even save ourselves? So, um, (laughs) no, it's true. No, no, because I wanted to ask you a question. You said something to me about this brings this up, and I never really... I I was waiting till now to ask you. You said something about a f- like finding something this because you just mentioned external forces. You said some clarify so I'm using the proper the verbiage, and you'll remember it was something to the effect of find something outside of yourself that's 
can you please help me remember what I can, I can. Yeah, well, I was talking about like, you know, getting away from the Borg song, you know, getting away from the, the Borg song, I think is the best way to put it. Getting out into the weather, you know, I mean, the other day, excuse me, I was, um, it was late at night and I'm, and I'm walking my dog and it's incredibly windy. I mean, really dangerously windy. I mean, we're lucky we weren't hit by a falling tree or something. Mm. You're not kidding, dude. I actually went past a huge ass fallen tree in the woods with some dogs today. Like full ass tree. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I mean, it was like it was really amazing. It was an amazing Powerful. experience. And, and you know, it's the kind of thing where most people wouldn't want to step outside the door in that kind of weather. Yep. But it was so beautiful, and it was just so inspiring, and just so um, invigorating. It's real. You know, it's it's you know raining and it's windy and uh, it's dangerous, but you know I'm away from Twitter. <laughs> you know I'm away from Facebook and 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 all these kind of things that just um, distort your your world. And um, I I, th- I think it's really necessary. You know, and it's something that it, it only occurred to me recently because. Like I said, when I was young, I spent a lot of time outside in all different kinds of weather. And, um, you know, you really, it heightens your experience. It, it heightens your consciousness, like literally heightens your consciousness. And, and that's like one of these kind of terms that you almost like want to strangle somebody when you hear them say that. Because most people, when they use that kind of terminology, aren't saying anything. But what it does is that it, it you become literally more aware of your environment, you become more aware of, you know, the smell of, of, a, of loam and, and, and rotting leaves and, and a, a brook and, you know, the smell of ozone before it rains and the smell of the wind and the petrichor. smell of, yeah, petrichor, exactly. Um, all these kind of things. And, um, you know, it, it's literally, your brain is processing more and more information rather than the four enclosed walls that you spend most of your time sitting in. Right on. So, you know, it, it's, it's, I think it's a really powerful thing. So, and, and I, I think it's something that we all need to do. I mean, I'm not one of these kind of people who's going to go on like, you know, a 30 mile <laughs> hike through the forest and then pitch a tent and sleep in the rough for a month. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I would like to in some ways, but. That makes me think of Mike Clellan for some reason. Yeah, I mean, it's not practical for me. I mean, well, I mean, here's a great example. Um, you know, I don't know if you know Mike Cleland. Um, oh, it's, it's, I'm not saying it correctly. It's Cleland? Yeah. Oh, that's something I think a lot of people should learn up on right now. Think, remember that. Oh, please continue. Sorry, I didn't. So anyway, but he's, yeah, um, I mispronounced he's it. actually a wilderness um, instructor. Yes, he is. And, um, you know, one of the things he said about doing that is that you, you realize, like, just how little you actually need. You know, we're so conditioned to uh, become attached to, to, to possessions and, and to certain objects. And he said, like, when you're out there, you, you realize you don't need all those things, you know. Um, and you really, you really focus on, on what you do need. And I, I think that that's a, that's a huge difference. I mean, here's a, here's a great example. So when I was in high school, just before, um, you know, we went off to college, we did the Saco River. I don't know if you've ever been up to the Saco River in Maine. It's a river that runs between Maine and, and, and New Hampshire. I so, may have um, in my youth, not, not recalling any time in adulthood though. Please continue. 
So, so it, was, it, was, it was like something out of like a movie. It was like, you know, me and my high school friends were all going away to different schools and everything. So we, you know, it was like one last hurrah. And we did this canoe trip down the Saka River in Maine. And, um, you know, I brought all this stuff, like I brought all this stuff because I'd never done this before. And, and I, like, it became like a burden. Like I was just dragging around all the stuff and it's just like, why did I bring this shit? You know, I don't need any of this. And, but I just didn't have that experience yet. And it's interesting too, because it rained the whole time. I and mean, the whole time we were there, it was like pouring down rain. And we're sleeping in these tents and we're just soaking wet. But it's just like, you don't even, you just get used to it. And you just realize that, you know, the one, one of the, the great things about like the human animal that I think that we tend to overlook is just how adaptive we are. Yeah, and um, it's true. You know, and it, it's we're extremely, you know, it's really, we're extraordinarily resilient. Yeah, and it's it's really been the secret to you know the success of our species. But it's it's something that I think we lose track of. You know, when when people become um, infantilized by modernity. Oh, uh, it's that's in and also the encroaching uh, brave new world slash or new world order. You know, brave new world order state. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it encourages that kind of infantilization. Infantilization. It certainly does on several, I, several levels. Yeah, I, I think it's really unfortunate. I, I think that... Um, I agree. You know, all I can say is they'd better hope that all these machines um, work the way that they think they're going to. I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually... Loving grace? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, skeptical about this. I mean, I, I'm actually very pessimistic because... You know, the one thing that I've noticed and, and you know, I've been increasingly noticing is just sort of the um, the degradation of expertise, you know, that the people are not very good at their jobs anymore. It's like people that you deal with in, in, in all these different situations, they just, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And I, you know, that encourages a lot of, of, of negative behaviors. It, it encourages, um, you know, people to break the law, people to... Um, cut corners uh, and all these kind of things in order to cover up the fact that they're not very good at their jobs. And, or know, that they like, have no idea about a financial system, which they're supposed to be running. Yeah. I, well, and this is something that, that Gordon and White have, I have, I have uh, discussed uh, quite a bit is just that, you know, the degradation of expertise, you know, particularly among the professional classes. I mean, we've seen this, um, you know, for instance, with, with doctors and, um, you know, there are all these sort of pressures on doctors with the, the um, HMOs and the insurance and the Medicare and all these kind of things. Arma. You know, they're always complaining about that it's, it's, it's hard to make a living and all this kind of stuff. But we've also had like, you know, doctors just allow themselves to become um, pill distributors, you know, for, for, big, for big pharma. And, you know, this is something that I've had, you know, very painful and protracted uh, experience with myself, um, you know, just ending up with this doctor who didn't want to give me what I needed, which was an anti-inflammatory. So he gave me you know, everything else and um, it really messed me up and it, it made my problems worse. Um, like crazy. I hear you. So it was, it was real, it was really difficult for me and for a long time um, because, you know, when people lose, start to begin to lose expertise, they tend to overthink as well. You know, they tend to look for more complex solutions. You know, a master 
you know, a master mechanic or a master swordsman or a master musician can sort of achieve the goal with a minimum of, of effort in some ways. You Less know, they, is more. They've, learned, they've learned, you know, to perfect their motions that they don't need to take X amount of steps to achieve the same goal. Yeah. But I think with this collapse of, um, of expertise that, you know, the exact opposite happens where, you know, things become overcomplicated and, and people begin to lose sight of that. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, people talking about things like the fourth turning and, and then there's, um, you know, Armstrong Economics is a website, there's a, you know, economist who, who sort of has these models and, and, you know, sees the system as we know it entering into a crisis point yes. in the next few years. As of November-ish in 20, was it 15? Are we getting that right? Third quarter, 2015 it was, right? According to the Armstrong model. Well, it, I'm, I'm fairly I'm not sure. exactly sure. I'm, you yeah. know, it, it, it's... I was telling people about The Forecaster yesterday, in fact. Uh, it's a film people should see. It starts off with a tarot fortune or non-fortune teller, if you really know tarot. Uh, you would say that this guy had this entire system come after him because he was an OG, wouldn't put up with their shit, starts off as a coin collector, really loves it. Like he's, he's what Chris talks about. He is, and we want to separate expert from authority because experts, someone, right. That's an important line to draw. I think basically this guy had two attempts on his life, at least one, because he has an understanding of the financial system that really kind of, again, Emperor No Clothes, the whole Federal Reserve, Jekyll Island bullshittery that we have to deal with until we get our heads out of our asses collectively or whatever, individually, however it goes. Yeah, yeah his, name Martin. Martin. his name is Martin Armstrong, by the yes, way. Yes, Martin Armstrong. So yeah. um, you were talking about how the cycle that we're on right now seems to be another turning of a cycle downwards, but, I mean, what are you going to do? That's the system that's delivered to us, right? Well, that's the other thing too, is that I think one of the other traps besides the whole save the world trap is, um, you know, where you have to, you know, there's this expectation that, you know, yourself as an individual and as a citizen can somehow solve, you know, have an answer to all our problems, you know, because you used to have these like man on the street interviews back in the day, you know, you'd have um, news reporters going around and ask, you know, whatever the, the political issue or something of the day, and like, what would you do about this? How would you solve this and everything like that? Yeah. And, you know, if you ever read The Onion, they, they sort of make fun of that in, in, in a very uh, pithy and insightful way, I think. But, you know, you know, if somebody came up to me and said, well, what would you do about the Federal Reserve System? It's like, what the hell do I know? I can't even balance a checkbook. Are you, are you seriously asking me? It's like, Yep. You know, know what I mean? You mean. It's like, I don't, yes, I don't yes. know. You know, <laughs> and I think this, 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 this weird, um, you know, this weird notion that, you know, because you're a citizen or whatever, that, that you can, it's so you, true. You're expected to come up with the answers to the problems. And I, I think this is what, you know, sort of one of the, um, the downfalls of democracy because, you know, democracy as it was practiced, I mean, even just a couple of hundred years ago, um, you had so much less information to, to process. You had so many less people. You had so much less technology. You had so much less information. Systems complexities, right? Yeah. You know, so, you know, you would have like, uh, 
you know, farmers who would become senators or something because the questions were a lot simpler. You know, the, the issues were a lot more basic. Well, and, and definitely I, in in these systems, like it's it's easy for us to forget there's like Chinese and like African and like it's also like you know we're a republic too, like not a democracy. I I, I don't know. Well, I, I think you know, the Confucian, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If you look at China and you look at the Confucian model, um, yes, it's it's much it's much different than a Western democratic or republican ideal. It's 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 a much different understanding of how society and the it's hierarchical for sure like indian societies with caste systems and kind of like an arabian in a way well pre-enlightened or you know yeah so you know i don't know i i it's it's very hard to to to, to answer and and i think that what you know you have to do is just focus on the things that you do know and the things that you are good at yeah man i agree let, let the world sort of work itself out and I agree uh, you know like, and if the system comes to a crisis point which a lot of people believe it will then it does and and you have to adapt somehow yes but I, I think yeah. you know you need to really um again sort of focus on what you know and, and focus on one thing at a time and, and forget all these kind of things like multitasking and all these um these traps really and i i think you know that's one thing that I think you can say universally about modernism is that it's just so full of traps, you know, it's, it's one trap after another traps and masks. Yeah. And, and it almost is like, it's, it's a trickster model, you know, because mm. there, you know, not only are there so many traps, but there's so many tricks you know, and, and it's becoming, you know, really worse and worse because the system is getting much better at circumventing the limits put on you know the economy and, and on civil authority by the constitution it's getting much better at, at, at um you know circumventing those limits that the, the the founders in their wisdom tried to place on power and i i think it was was it john adams um you know i mean even the founders themselves were, were very you know they were not necessarily pessimistic but they understood that you know democracies such as they are, or republics for that matter, yeah. don't last very long. Benjamin Franklin's famous for saying, "What you know? What kind of government do we have?" When he when he was asked, he replied, "A republic, gentlemen, if you can keep it." Yeah, and you know, because he understand he understands. Yeah, these guys were very well educated. He was no they simpleton. Understand. Yes, he and he not just educated, but he had access to real lived power. You know, people are very skeptical of higher. Uh, motions and machinations of how our lives kind of seem to be, you know, but this was one of those men and here he is saying simply straight up, look, this is this, if you do this, but you know, I would add if we win the war on dreaming, just to get a word in for this, if we win the war on dreaming, we won't need the constitution. We will remember that the constitution is referred to in the Simpsons with the word suckers for the reason that all we really actually need is the declaration of independence. That is the precursor. The constitution's actually a trap in of itself and of a different way. I'm getting way deeper than we need to, but it's necessary to point that out. So the war on dreaming is actually what if we're actually living according to our own. Okay. This is a good question to segue into. Where's the, where's the separation between our true wants, Chris, and the ones that are kind of like filtered in through 
not even just like subliminal advertising, but you know, some kind of external where you would say you have to decide for yourself. Where's that cutoff line? Do you see the question I'm asking? It's different. For, it's, it's different for everybody. You know, I mean, that's not. Again, these aren't questions that you can answer as a group. I mean, that's that's a question that you have to answer on an individual basis. You have to answer it for yourself. Like, where is my limits? You know, where mm. is my cutoff point? You know, where, where do I decide that I don't want to play this game anymore? Where yeah. do I decide that I need, I need to do something else? And um, I, I think, you know, it's a very difficult um, question to answer. The reason I... The reason I ask these, like, and I, 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 I realize you call them like um, traps and stuff like that, and I have no problem with that verbiage. I mean, there's all sorts of ways. I'm still learning to understand this. I think that ultimately, like, it comes back to saying you were just saying it about two second, two minutes ago when you said you have to do what you kind of want to do in this world, and that's why I kind of asked that question: where you know what you want. But for me, I want people. I've also had times like you've had. I've had those trials that we all have. I've had influences on my life that I would rather not have had, but Hey, you know, there it is. So I want people to have a sense of deep understanding that even that the good that they go through and the shittiness that they go through, like they really aren't alone. I want them to feel that through whatever art I make, but not just as simple as they're not alone. Like it's not just like that. There's something like always that I want to impart in people that there's always more that they can be doing to increase their viability as an individual soul. I don't know if I'm putting this into simplified enough language, but I hope that I'm imparting my intentionality to you directly and um, accurately enough. Just why I, why I ask these questions. No, I think you are. I think you are. And, you know, again, it's, it's something that you really need to discover yourself. And maybe that's just the whole point of it is, is having discovered that. Well, isn't this so awesome? I hope you guys are enjoying this conversation. I want to say that this is the part for the donations that are from $50 and above to $199.99. This is the second donation segment, and you get to have your name right here for the amount of money. Most of you know how that works by now, but if you don't, again, that's how it is. We have the first donation segment and the first in the intro, and this is the mid-tro. This is where we get the latter half of the donations read. Of course, we have outros later to say what we will say then. But for now, thank you for listening. And without further ado, back to the show. All right. So, Chris, I have six questions that I asked during these things throughout intermittently sprinkled sparsely. So let's start with the first one. This is the first of six questions on the Six of Swords. What's your favorite place? Um, first encounter beach in East Ham. The Cape. Have you been there? I will go there now. <laughs> Not literally tonight, but I will in the next few weeks. My girl. Uh, well, anyways, yes, I'll be around the Cape. Uh, first encounter beach. Actually, my um, <clears throat> my ancestors settled that town. No shit. Back in the day, yeah. Um, they didn't they didn't get along with the, the uh, pilgrims in Plymouth, so they uh came down the Cape and they, they settled um, East Ham. If you go uh, right off of Route 6, there's a big cemetery. And it's really weird because it's like half of it is Knowles's. Huh. So it's kind of disorienting. It's like, whoa. <laughs> it's surreal. 
Yeah, and they're and they're all masons too. I mean, like it's it's really funny because you go down like you go down there and you you look at all these headstones and it's either, you know, the square and compass of the Eastern Star. There there are very few um, crucifixes or anything. They were all um, they're all masons. A lot of them were Swedenborgians too. Uh, that is just fascinating. Yeah, there was actually um, my family had started a, uh, a Swedenborgian church. In uh, there's a bookstore in the building that it used to be now, um, and I'd been I'd bought a um, an H.P. Lovecraft volume there uh, at this bookstore. Cool. And I'm just trying to remember what town it is. Um, might be Dennis. I'm not exactly sure. Sure. Oh, it but could it, be uh, though. But um, yeah the uh, the bookstore is in you know what used to be a Swedenborgian church that was started by my my ancestors or relatives really or cool. whoever. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that's um, but yeah, First Encounter Beach is a just beautiful, beautiful place. Water is like seventy degrees, but there are also like there's um, there's like these channels that come in you know with the tides and stuff and you can just sort of like just lie down in this like stream and i'll take you like through these uh, salt marshes and you know you'll see all these starlings flying around and it's really really beautiful place and also when um when the tide goes out you can walk for like a half a mile at least i don't know if you've ever done that down the cape no, probably but it also not. faces it also faces west, so you you know you walk into the sunset. It's just a beautiful place. Thank you. That's that's um yeah. We've been spe- I was starting to say my girlfriend and I have been spending um some time at the Cape recently, and uh, we just were on Nantucket. I know you have that song Nantucket Speedway. Give a shout out to that for sure. <laughs> I got, did I get that right? Is it Nantucket Speedway? That's the name of the, your yeah. song. Yeah, okay, yeah. I got it right. Nice. I like that song. Thank um, you. It's just a dem. I mean, it's not even a song. It's just you know. But but it's still yeah. something you can listen to and enjoy. Um, Thank you. Well, F to the yeah. My favorite place is now gone in Nantucket, but it was called Espresso Cafe. I don't know if you ever got a chance to go there. Oh my gosh! But the the point is, the Cape is. I don't think I've ever been to Nantucket. I've been to Martha's Vineyard, but I don't think. I've oh, ever been. right on. Dude, but it's it's just such a it's it's like I feel you on the Cape, um, Orleans, right next to East Ham. Uh, that's uh that's a really uh, big town for me. They have the Bird Watchers General Store there. Uh, if you're ever in Orleans, go there. It's on I think it's right off of six six uh, A maybe, and uh, you go in there to the Bird Watchers General Store in Orleans. And if you tell a joke, they'll ring a bell and give you a pencil complimentary. It's just the nicest store. You really got to visit it if you're on the Cape. It's the bird. It's just great. Um, thank you for that answer. Um, let's just keep going because I think you'll like the second question. I, I wrote this with you in mind, actually. I really hope you'll give us a good one. What's the stupidest fad <laughs> that has ever existed? Um, <clears throat> I think that this current fad of like call out culture and Twitter mobs and cancel culture and shit like that culture. Yeah. I think that's the stupidest fad that's ever existed. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably going to go on for a little while longer, but when it ends, there's going to be a, a horrific backlash that is going to be um, very ugly. Uh, I agree. I think that uh, also that's the cis thing is going to, uh, I think the white guilt and the cis things running out too. I, I really think that uh, that card is burned. It's burned its way out. 
I think. Well, you know, the whole, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I'm actually working on this for a, a, a blog posting, but, you know, everything that sort of gets quote unquote woke, like fails spectacularly. And, and, you know, one of the examples that you can just look at this weekend, they, this new Terminator movie, you know, that, you know, sort of uh, woke Terminator installment. Um, film cost, I think it's like $200 million to make and another, so they've, they've already sunk $400 million into this movie and it made 25, $27 million at the box office. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are getting tired of it. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if anybody really liked it to begin with. Um, you know, you have all these sort of um, online media companies that, you know, sort of sell this woke culture as clickbait and they're all failing spectacularly. So, yeah, I, I think that's the stupidest fad that I can think of. Yeah, I mean, it's almost as if like they're just taking, not only with Disney remaking everything, but now they're just, you know, taking all the old stories but replacing it with a, well, I, anyways, we're wading into difficult territory, I suppose, but you get my point. They're just rehashing things from a different vantage point that's playing directly to that mindset right now and it's only got such an appeal before it, ca- it caves in on itself it's not going to sustain itself it can't it's well i think the problem is, is that you know, the, the people who make these things really aren't as intelligent as they want you to believe they are and they also live in bubbles they also yes. live in you know very um echo chambery bubbles yeah isolated enclaves really yes and they don't see outside of that and they just don't understand that Outside of these enclaves, people just don't think that way, and it you know it doesn't matter what race or sex or sexual preference they are. I mean, just most right. people just don't think that way. They don't appreciate this kind of thinking, and and I think it's um it's it's the way it's failing now is is only going to accelerate. And like I said, I th- I think there's going to be a very um, ugly and sustained backlash against it. You know, which which also worries me because. You know, these pendulum swings, I, I think, are very dangerous for That's culture. what I'm wondering. What do you think that's... Can you maybe say a little bit more what that's going to look like? Um, no, I can't. Um, I just know that it's, it's... You know, the people... You know, people who have been unfairly canceled are going to be not only rehabilitated, but people are going to go after the people who are behind these sort of lynch mobs. Um, and uh, I don't know it's, what long it's going to take. Um, it's but truly it, Shakespearean. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's very worrisome. But, you know, I'm, pendulum swinging has, you know, ruled culture for longer than I've ever been alive. So what, you know, what can possibly... Yeah, I hear you. You can stop it. Uh, you know, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, we're right at uh, what we're coming up on uh, the 5th of November, of course, speaking of such forces and interplays and exchanges. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, now, it's, it's interesting because um, then that instantly gets into like the Alan Moore and then you could shift into like the Grant Morrison way of seeing things. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, did you, they, they're actually, it's interesting. Speaking of like redoing things, they're actually coming up both with a Watchmen television show. And as you know, at least a while ago, Invisibles was being touted as being a potential show. Do you have any, uh, anything to say on those two being made into TV series? No, I don't watch any of that stuff. Sure. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of over it all. Um, 
it doesn't interest me anymore. Um, so I, I, I just, I don't have much to say. I, um, I never really got into these, these superhero TV shows. Um, and, and one of the reasons being is that, you know, so many of them just sort of recycle stories that I, I'd read when I was a kid. So, yeah. you know, the stories don't really thrill me because I know how they end or yes. I know how they're going to, to, to proceed. So it's kind of like Simpsons did it, but Jack Kirby Kirby did it. Yeah. Um, and you know, Kirby's a hard guy to top, you know, um, you know, as far as his, his storylines, you know, his writing was always very weird, but yeah. Um, his imagination was, uh, was very fractal so could you uh, connect yeah. him to lovecraft at all like you know what i mean like as as far as a kind of like thinker in the way that he built universes in that way and kind of like saw a different driving narrative or impetus behind what was causing forces and events that are hidden it, i don't know it that's i mean kirby did so many different things it's, it's really hard to say i mean there, he did do certain things that had similarities to lovecraft but um it's he did so much, you know, Lovecraft sort of worked in this particular milieu in this particular genre, but, you know, Kirby was all over the place um, and, you know, produced much more work from much longer. So it's, it's really hard to say. Um, Cause that does allow us to kind of venture to the Twin Peaks quickly and X-Files. Um, I, I, it's a show you might've heard of and it's like, I've been around like this crazy thing that they did. And I just had this idea, like, uh, I want to share with you. You know how Twin Peaks, obviously made before the internet and the, the saturation, like a different, that it was from that universe of, that universe A mindset. And it said in 25 years, we'll see you again. And literally, as if presaged in stone almost, it did come back. And I couldn't help but notice that X-Files, right, came out season 10, <laughs> came out in 2016 then twin peaks 2017 david duchovny and all three of them of course and then you got um 2018 am i doing that right yeah for the final 11 you know starts off with a fake moon landing anyways so what do you think about this kind of like cycle of time and like almost like super supernatural like do you do you think that there's a hidden hand force going on or is david lynch just really into astrology and but you get what I'm saying. So what's going on with these shows showing up at this time? Well, Lynch is a really interesting case because he does, um, you know, we know that he does TM, but I also, um, I think he's a Freemason. I, I think that um, he's an esoteric Freemason. I think he's involved in, 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 you know, esoteric masonry. And I think that's where the, um, <clears throat> Oh golly! I, I what was the name of the the secret society? This the something boys, you know? They did this. Bookhouse boys, yes. This bookhouse one. boys, yeah. So the bookhouse boys in um in the original series, you know, they didn't really get into that too deep, deeply. But you know, you had the whole thing with the blue rose, which I think um, I think that you know esoteric crypto masonry, Freemasonry. I think it it, it it's very much part of his thinking, and I also think it's part of Mark Frost's thinking. And I think it's more obvious with Mark Frost. I mean, if you read, you know, the, the books that he's written, you know, the sort of the Twin Peaks universe books that he's written, I, I think he goes into more detail on that, where Lynch is, um, 
you know, it's almost like Frost does the play-by-play and, and, and Lynch is the color commentator, you know? So I, I think that, um, I, I think that that's very much part of his thinking. Sure. And, and um, you know, but also, um, you know, it has to be said, I mean, Lynch was a huge Cocteau Twins fan. And, and I think he, the kind of things that I'm sort of uncovering now, I think that he was, he was much farther ahead of the curve that somehow this, this woman and this music was tapped into that other reality, you know, that they were picking up that signal from that other reality. And I think that was um, a very big uh, influence on him. I know what you mean by that other reality, by the way, because actually just point of personal fact and gnosis, I woke up one day or quote unquote, when we get, when we wake up from whatever sleep is, I literally got up and I, I had to write this on my ceiling. I woke up from the other universe to write this down. So I know what you're talking about. I mean, like I've lived this weirdness. Like I, that was years ago. I, this, this pre-human dream world that we might call the subconscious or where the real war on dreaming is. They, you said it's interesting that he did TM. I wanted to, before we proceed, why, why is that interesting though? Well, you know, TM something that I've always been kind of. I do it. You know that? I just that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's interesting because um, I've never been able to meditate in that way. I mean, I, I sort of have used other forms of meditation, like um, uh, hypnagogic meditation. But, you know, also when I was doing martial arts, I mean, like that was a, a really great form of meditation for me because same when I was doing martial arts, it, it turned off those kind of filters that, um, that meditation does as well. So, um, you know, I just think that, I think Lynch is is a very unique creator, and he's oh, yeah. somebody who um, I think he's traveled <laughs> around these other realities, uh, at least in his mind, you know, quite a bit. I, I think you know that Twin Peaks: The Return was um, it just it was such a game changer for me it, it's made it very di- you know i I'll, I'll be honest it's it's made it very difficult you know since that time i just have a hard time focusing on anything now as far as uh, television or movies because he stretched the envelope so far yes and he just he you know it just blew my mind and um it's just a you know, he threw down a gauntlet that I don't think anybody's really been been willing to pick up. Um, oh, I mean, he he did. And I don't know literally. if anybody's able to. I mean, um, no. what season eight was? He did two television, but the theme of what season eight was trying to get across. Uh, excuse me, episode eight was trying to get across. That's what he did to television. Yeah. Um, so, It, you know, he is, he is a universe unto himself. And, and I just, I don't think that anybody has that vision. Um, do you really think he's a Freemason, though? Yeah, I do. Um, well, I knew that he was um, OA, Order of the Arrow, uh, as an Eagle Scout. Sure. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but uh, my, my son was a scout for a few years, and we had gone to... Um, He'd gone to a Boy Scout camp in Pennsylvania, and and we saw, um, you know, they did like the OA, the Order of the Arrow, did a um, one of their rituals, and it was just, I mean, it, 
you know, I made a joke that I felt like, you know, we got our entered apprentice just watching it. I remember reading um, that in your blog. I remember that. that. I remember yeah, reading that. I mean, yeah, it's, it was really, um, it was really something to see. It was very, um, you know, it reminded me of like, um, almost like the Knights Templar or something. It was very highly developed ritual. And they all knew their parts and they all performed them really well. So I, I think that, um, yeah, I do think he, I do think that he is, um, I don't know if he's like a regular Mason. I don't know if he's like AFAM. I think he might be part of like, uh, maybe like a Martinist order or Rosicrucian order, something that is, um, you know, like I said, esoteric masonry. Yeah. I don't think he's involved in like standard craft masonry. I think he's involved in, in something of a much higher order. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, and it could be Martinist. It could be um, uh, Memphis and Mizraim. I mean, it, it's, sure. just, it's something that is not, you know, your standard sort of, you know, beef and beer kind of Freemasonry, <laughs> uh, beef and beer on Thursday night kind of deal. I, I think that it's 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 much different. And I think it's more, um, like I said, I think it's more cult. I think it's more magical. I but, definitely uh, think he's doing something magical because he's also showing like Kenneth Grant's milestone with the, you know, the whole, you know, and he's showing how something about whatever electricity is, you know, that Benjamin Franklin harnessed, right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, there's something, remember the soul floats up and what happens? It kind of goes through the electrical wires when the little boy gets hit and stuff like that. Oh yeah. So, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, he, I, I, he's definitely, I don't think he just, I don't think he just cooked that stuff up out of his imagination. Of I, I think he's working. He's, I think he's working from a system that is very, um, it might not even be something that we know about. It might be right. I love that kind of idea. But you know what's yeah. something cool that you can look at? Uh, here's a little tidbit you'll like to chew on for a moment with Twin Peaks The Return. Of course, looking symbolically right at what it's called, TP. And then you have a segment that looks like another P, but it's a continuation. So straight from just like the basic looking at it, it's Twin, do you see? And so then it goes further than that because he's actually instigating something with this Libran energy in the following manner. Virgo, the symbol on this side of Libra, has her dainty legs tucked. That's why on the other side, mm, the other female, but it's now with Mars, Scorpio's got it boning right up there like a Frank Black picture. So on both sides, you got TP, dainty legs tucked, and then you get, so you get Virgo for TP, and you get Scorpio for the return. And of course, I'll add that this is, of course, Saturn's return, the amount of time period that the actual thing went around to come back out again. So these are interesting little things that are cooked right into it that you can, if you're looking with that attitude that you're saying David Lynch, Chris is saying that David Lynch is perhaps imparting, Mark Frost is imparting, because they do have a full-blown Masonic apron in the secret history of Twin Peaks named after Jonathan Black's secret history of the world fashion. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there, but when you have the eyes to see, holy crap, there's... Well, I mean, come on. I mean, you know, let's just take it down to the very basics. I mean, you know, what do we have? We have the Black Lodge and the White Lodge. Exactly what I was thinking you were going to say. Exactly. Um, you know what I mean? So, you know, how much more obvious does it need to be? I mean, not only the lodges, but also the bookhouse boys. You know, Right, it's the quality of people, though, because remember, Hank Jennings was a bookhouse boy, and what happened to him? Who was? Hank Jennings. Oh, oh, right, right. 
Um, well, the disgrace one, right? So I, I think you know, but I, I think that it's it's there. If, and if you look at um, the fire walk with me, oh my god, you're taking words out of my head, dude. This is cool. Yeah, I mean the whole that whole sort of presentation with um, the woman at the airport, you know, sort of doing that whole pantomime. Yeah, yeah. Lil, like Lil, my 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 cousin's nephew's girl, whatever it is, right? My uncle's nephew. This is my aunt's nephew's girl, right? Lil, you're talking about that weird dance she does in front of Chris Isaac and such. Yeah, but also, I mean, you know, also the idea when um in the return, um, you know, when uh, you know, Tammy is sort of um recruited, you know, into the to the Blue Rose. And and that to me feels very Masonic too. But it, it, again, it's it's almost like um, it reminds me almost more like Skull and Bones, you know, where you tap. But they've been watching her all along. You know, they've been watching her her whole. You know, they knew what her grades were in high school. You know, right. And and I just think, um, you know, I was having a conversation with somebody else through email about about Alistair Crowley, and you know, I said, you know, I, you know, he was wondering like how. Crowley got into Trinity and, and I was just like well you know first of all Crowley had money because his father you know had the brewery and everything but I think that um the Plymouth brethren they were yeah I mean the system is is oh you know has done this for a very long time where you know they sort of you know they keep an eye on things they they look out you know people who show promise people I, Chris, I can speak from experience you're not wrong <laughs> This yeah. Is- so yeah, I mean, I I think that the system. So with Crowley, I mean, I think you know Crowley was a known quantity before. Um, you know, he he would ever you know apply to a um, Trinity. But to, to bring it back around to people. But no, but I just wanted I wanted to just finish what I was going to say. Um, oh, sure. Yes, the email. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I think what you know with with you know Crowley's big mistake was, is that he thought all this stuff that was being said and done and practiced in private could be made public and could be like the basis of a new religion. And I think, you know, why it got very, things got very dicey for him and, and why he, he had all these legal problems and all these things that he had, it was that, you know, all these sort of rituals and practices that, um, you know, all the circles, you know, the military, intelligence, academia, science, I mean, all these people were practicing in, in private. You know, he was making public and it, and it was just like, no, you don't, no, you don't, you know, you don't do that. It's it's almost, you know, from you know, it's like the whole thing with the Morgan affair <clears throat> with Freemasonry in, in the 1800s. It's just like, you know, keep, keep it quiet. And I think Crowley's big mistake was, um, he couldn't keep his big mouth shut because he was such a narcissist. Um, the ego so, is one of the most destructive forces in this world, for sure. Well, you know, the other thing too is, so I've, I've been looking into this whole Kenneth Grant thing and you oh. know, trying to figure out this Kenneth Grant thing because I, I watched this, um, there used to be a, a detective series um, with a guy who played Hagrid. Um, what's his name? Coltrane, Robbie Coltrane played this uh, detective in you know, Cracker, which was on uh, BBC back in the, in the nineties. And, and uh, I just, for some reason, I bought this, um, this box set, you know, at a book sale ages ago. And I just decided to pull it out because I, I was sick of everything else and I'd never watched it. And, you know, I'm watching this whole thing with this, this character named 
Kenneth Trant, you know, and he's like, he's like a, a he's a, you know, his public face is that he's like a, a sort of runs this sort of sect, this sort of very culty form of, of evangelicalism. But, you know, in private, it's like, he's basically like a cosmicist, you see, you know, and I'm, I'm like watching this and going, this is Kenneth Grant, you know? I mean, you know, because he has this uh, sexual relationship with his young girl. And if you read uh, Grant's stuff, it's very, you know, there's a lot of that stuff in there. And I, it's a little unsettling how, um, you know, he all but advocates this kind of behavior. So, um, you know, I think it was known, and, you know, this, this friend and I were trying to like, you know, what what is Kenneth Grant's biography? What is his background? He doesn't seem to exist outside of these sporadic books that he published. But I think, you know, he was, you know, he kept his mouth shut, you know. Uh, he, he, he might have published these books, but he didn't make a big stink about it. He kept his name out of the papers. And I think he was, you know, a lot more influential in certain circles than, than people would be led to believe. So I think, you know, the whole idea of secrecy. So I think that getting back to Lynch in a very roundabout and circuitous fashion, I think that <laughs> Lynch is um, whatever, you know, sort of esoteric form he might be involved in. Sure. You know, I, I, I just would imagine they're very secretive. And, um, you know, he expresses these ideas through his art. But um, I, I think that the, they're not people who want to draw attention to themselves, you know, as an organization. And, you know, I mean, secrecy is power. It really is. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's like being a, a moving target or a hidden target. You know, well, when, it's when like you're known and you're out there in the public, you know, you become a visible target. Secrecy. Well, for there's so many things to deconstruct or unpack there. But just to the point of um, like secrecy, it's like any kind of tool, right? It is a function and a man, a woman or a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, anyone, anyone, anyone. You have intimate people in your life you have secrets with. And in that case, I think it would be healthy to keep them. And in certain other ways, there are other ways that it's healthy. And perhaps in other ways, it really isn't like seven countries in seven years kind of secrets. Like there are are different levels of, you know, it's, you know, it's like so easy to shit on socialism and say, well, okay, you want socialism. Well, give me the keys to your apartment. You know, no borders, no keys. You know, I mean, but there's, you get lost in the complexity and there's obviously not always a direct as above, so below. I want to add one quick thing to this idea of the Black Lodge and the White Lodge and Freemasonry and, you know, definitely Crowley, to your point, probably go with before the fall. It almost seems like to sum that up. Um, but, of course, Crowley and uh, his protege, fellow Libra son Parsons, were both in the secret history of Twin Peaks, right, as L. Ron Hubbard was, as all part of that Milford investigation into Blue Book and even up into Pine Gap-type territory. It really spans the gamut. It's, it's, kind of like, um, it's kind of like the Invisibles. It's a chaos, magic, conscious bomb, the secret history of Twin Peaks book itself. Jackie Gleason, Richard Nixon... You get the whole, you've read it, you know. It even talks about those archetypal characters in Twin Peaks and some of their outcomes. And that's power in of itself. Here's one thing I noticed. Black Lodge, White Lodge. Remember in the first part of the book when they're talking about Lewis and Clark who explored America. So that goes back to your part about how much was really, right? Is that a myth of America, right? So going forward, because we talk about the Native Americans and such, White Lodge he said was the Masons in that book. He said the Black Lodge 
was the Illuminati infiltrated Masons. I'm just telling you what the secret history twin. I'm not telling you any this, that, the other thing. That's what that says. Now, I noticed Fire Walk With Me is basically what? That's kind of about the Black Lodge shit, right? That's really the, you know, I'm the great went. I'm blank as a fart. You know, that's basically the, you know, that's a real dark Black Lodge kind of movie. Maybe one White Lodge character, Mike freaking out, screaming at him before the engine oil thing. You had a bad generator kind of thing. So here's the thing. In the very title, again, you have F and M, the Freemason, separated by the winged owls the Illuminati Masons. The, w, the, the walk with is a winged winged. It's, a, it's supposed to represent owls as a glyph. So it's the infiltrated or Black Lodge. I'm just trying the connections. In the well, I'll, I'll tell you, this, this, um, you know, that's a lot of that is speculation, I guess. But um, well, It's in the books for that. No, no but, but I'm saying on his part. Oh, sure, um, sure. But I, I think that there's, um, there's a much better example from history about that. So, I mean, this is something I've talked about. So, you know, we have uh, episode eight with, with the, um, the Trinity site and then the atomic testing and, and so on and so forth and, and, and Zhao Day and, and, the, and the demons sort of descending yes. to earth, you know, yes. Bob and so on and so forth. Yes. But, um, uh, you know, the whole idea of the, um, the lodge above the store. Convenience right? store. It's convenient. Yes. But, uh, but that's, um, that's actually from history. So there was something called the Lincoln County War in the, in the 1800s. And this is really where the whole um, mythology of, of uh, Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett come from. Because basically what it was is that you had two um, warring Masonic lodges in New Mexico. And um, one was literally a lodge above a dry goods store, which was the convenience store at the time, right? So there was a, a dry goods store that, that um, housed a lodge that was uh, battling with a rancher whose name escapes me at the moment, but, but he had, he, his enforcers in his lodge um, were called the regulators. And the regulators on um, Billy the Kid, I mean, people don't realize that Billy the Kid was a Freemason. And, and yes, he was. Yeah, a photo out there of uh, Billy the Kid in his Masonic apron. I, you know, it's... It's something they've heard about, but it's it's very difficult to find. But um, so Billy the Kid was a Freemason. I and think Walter Bosley talks about it. Sorry to interrupt. I just I think Bosley yes. talks about it. So Billy the Kid was part of a, a Masonic gang called the Regulators, and it was basically a war. You know, it's called the Lincoln County War or the Lincoln County Range War between this lodge run um, out of this convenience store and a lodge run out of a, um, a ranch, cattle ranch. And uh, you know, Billy the Kid was, uh, you know, he was a very loyal soldier to this rancher. And, um, and there was the whole thing with, you know, with Pat Garrett. I mean, you know, New Mexico was basically, uh, you know, it was a Masonic state um, uh, through and through. So I, I think that that's one of the- um, I think it's great. The, the drawing on that they're not necessarily it could be part. It's like the green language. It has multiple levels of meaning, and that could be definitely informing it from one angle. One thing. Yeah, that I, I think it is. I think it is because, um, you know, the the lodge over the dry goods store is kind of seen as the bad guys because um, they were involved with this. Um, you know, I think it was a, a land dispute, and um, 
you know, their gang had killed this rancher. Uh, and he was an Englishman, and, and I can look up the name, but, um, you know, it doesn't really matter. But I, I think that that was um, also part of this, uh, you know, myth- mythology that of, of the Black Lodge and the White Lodge. That's interesting. But, yeah, yeah I, I, I just think that, um, you know, and it's the whole thing, too, with, like, you know, the hotel is really like a lodge itself, right? A room with many souls and stuff like that. Yeah, right? you know, Benjamin Lodging. Horn and everything like that. You literally lodge there. You ro- you Robin Lodge. You What's know? that? You literally lodge there. It's called lodging. That's the name. Yeah, of yeah. Function. So, um, you know, I think again, I think this is something that um, the lodger yeah, really yeah. informs Ooh. Twin Peaks. But like I said, this is not. This is like again, this is not your standard beef and beer on Thursday night kind of Freemasonry. It's it's very esoteric, and I'm not exactly sure what branch or school or you know it could be something we don't even know about. But yeah, yeah. I, well, I mean, it's just is very heavily involved in it. For another cool idea, just for the idea of like being good and like, you know, I, I try, I'm my, my entry into chaos magic and Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism before I did all of this stuff, I was very interested in Taoism. I was very interested in energy cultivation and especially the multiple orgasmic aspect of energy cultivation. That was my first entryway into understanding the consciousness circuit, right? If you can call it that. But now I've evolved, but I try to evolve, I I avoid falling too far into a dualistic paradigm. I try to remain uh, whatever, right? But ultimately there is something about upward spiraling, uh, what we, I hope you and I can understandably refer to as upward spiral mentality and downward spiral mentality. And it's kind of just a way that you can live your life. It doesn't mean you have to become an ubermensch or save society or even balance your checkbook properly all the time. But there's something about just living, kind of moving the ball forward or being useful to whatever you're here to do. There's something about upward spiral thinking and downwardness or whatever we can call it, you know. But there's, you know, time does move forward and we try to do something useful. You wrote a book recently. You look great. Like you look like you're so happy. This is finally getting, you know, like that's progress. That's not dithering Sisyphinianly. Sisyphinianly? Well, we got vaults. So the point is, is that we have meaning somehow and it feels satisfying even if, so what I'm trying to say is like, I guess one thing I want to get across in this conversation for people who might listen to like some cool advice, like what, uh, what is satisfaction in that realm? How can people at least like, you know, feel that level of yay win? You know what I mean? From your perspective. Well, you know, from my perspective, um, you know, the idea of, of compassion and, you know, connection you know, I think is really important and, you know, not being, trying to be a newer man, you're trying to be, you know, a universe unto yourself. You know, I think um, it's interesting because I always sort of look at this difference between um, Jung and Crowley and, and the, you know, I, they were born the same year. I mean, they, they their, their paths were, were parallel for quite some time and they had a lot of the same interests, you know, but, um, Jung set out wanting to heal people and Crowley set out wanting to control people. Mm. And um, I know, you know, Crowley has a lot of, of apologists and, and it's something that, you know, I, I, I kind of have to take exception to because 
you know, he was a toxic person who, who left a, a lot of damage in his wake. Yes. And, and, hurt a, and, you know, he hurt a lot of people. And um, I think it's, you know, because he um, wanted to service his ego uh, to, to such a great extent that it distorted um, everything he did. And, and whatever good he did or whatever good he tried to do, was really um, overshadowed by this. Um, it was self-serving. This darkness, and you know, it's interesting too because you know, this there's, there's a tendency when you look at people like Crowley and Parsons and and Kenneth Grant to to kind of like say, you know, it's almost like a contrarian reactionary um, thinking where it's like, oh well, every you know, such and such said that these are these are bad people, so they must be good people. You know, it's right. It's kind of like reverse binary thinking, which I, I just you know find very strange. You know, death trap I, I don't think that, I don't think that that Jack Parsons was a good guy. You know, I, I think that he was a very screwed up guy, and he he really did a lot of damage to himself and others. Yeah, and others because um because of his ego, because of his narcissism, and and I think that um you know if you read his writings, I I have one of his books, uh, Freedom Is a Two Edged Sword. Yeah, you know, when you read his writings, you kind of get a sense that this was, a, you know, this was a messed up guy, and I don't, I don't think it's somebody that should be lionized. I mean, he's a fascinating character, and, and the story is fascinating, and you know, all the stuff with L. Ron Hubbard and Crowley and and Jane Wolfe and all these other people, and and what is it, Frater Akkad and all these kind of people. It's, it's, what is it, Stansfield Jones? Is that his name? That sounds familiar. Yeah, I mean, so these, these people are all like, you know, fascinating. Uh, and, you know, of course, Marjorie Cameron as well. Surely. Um, so these people are fascinating characters and their stories are fascinating. But, you know, they're not anything to lionize it, to emulate. And well, I think you came on, you said it yourself. If I may just bring it back, you said a big distinction between the two. And you're right. It's the healer. You used the word healer. Jung versus Crowley to bring it back to that. And that struck me because I can't, you know, I see through, you know, my project being the Holy gift. One of the lyrics is crucify the ego before it's far too late. And of course we can talk about what crucifixion means from like a metaphysic level the, the you know, maybe that's the third eye awakening and seeing what your ego really is. Right. You know what I mean? That kind of substantial ego death so that you realize you're not the be all end all of being in human. That's just one lyric, mind you. But another aspect of that album, to bring it to what you're saying, the album's, uh, excuse me, the song's called The Patient. And of course, it talks about having compassion and patience for people and saying that I could walk away at any time, but I'm still going to be here giving blood, giving faith, compassion, patience. And of course, what's a patient, but you're healing them by giving them your, there's all these levels of me. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So compassion, patience, being there for other people. That's what I think. That's why maybe Jung's the winner if you talk about a celebrity death match of those two. But anyways, I wanted to affirm that's at least how I can understand your point in, in, in that way. No, I, that is my point. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is, um, you know, trying to get away from grand theories of everything and trying to get away from... Um, this need to describe and catalog and 
and define everything and just deal with, you know, the basic problems at hand and, you know, the basic problems that the people are, are going through. I, you know, we've, we've come, we're sort of almost on the, the end of a cycle that, that started, you know, with the enlightenment and into the industrial revolution yep. yes. where everything needed to be defined and categorized. And, and that was some way to control it. And I think that that leads, leads, you know, it certainly has its place, of course, you know, science and, and technology and medicine and all these kind of things, you know, particularly engineering, which, you know, is, is a fascination of mine. I mean, all these things definitely have their place, but I think that they're not, you know, they're, they're just tools. They really are just tools. And if you try to make them the focus of your life or your religion, which I think a lot of people have tried to do, you know, I think that leads to a very dark and lonely place. Um, because, you know, competition and ego and, and, and all these kind of things sort of enter into it, you know, because of the spoil system and the rewards for being able to isolate or define something within, the, you know, the realm of science or, or technology. So, you know, that, that has a place, and, and that's going to happen no matter what, you know, you or I do. Yeah, but, but I you're think, right. you know, really focusing more on, you know, being, I don't want to say of service to people because that, that kind of has a connotation that, you know, can become another trap, but just being somebody who, who wants to, um, you know, just maybe brighten somebody's day, you know, or, or make, or, or, or expand somebody's awareness or, or, or deepen somebody's experience of life. Um, yes. You know, I think that's, you know, that these are very powerful gifts that I, I think uh, are underappreciated because of our um, very self-centered, uh, you know, the self-centered focus that, you know, the me generation and all these kind of things. Well, it increases too. Don't forget if, if you can get people so self-centered like that, it really is. I don't want to stray too far into just throwing MK ultra bathwater, but by getting everyone to kind of focus on these darker needs, right? That's some way of turning us more into focusing on those more craven aspects. And you learn to feed that fire when ultimately really, the white lodge aspect would be the giving people that permission to realize that maybe when they go into those selfish moods, they can pull back from that and realize that that's a dark, you know, remember the dark wolf and the light wolf, that's them feeding that MK ultra dark part and they can come back and you know, I'm, I'm speaking broadly, but not too, not inaccurately. I'm simply saying that they can choose to instead go towards that angle of attitude that you have brought up. And there is a fine line between them. Again, the reason the Black Lodge is above the convenience store, according to what I'm saying, is because that convenient path, that backslide, that's convenient. You have plenty of stores and stores and stores of souls that have done that. I don't, I'm just, you see the connection though. So again, I, I, maybe just to make it super simple, uh, instead of, like you said, not just calling it service towards others, but like upward spiral. By doing that thing, you kind of made things better-ish. You didn't make things worse-ish. You know, it's, it's sometimes all this stuff we're trying to say, it makes it simple just to say that. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I'm sure you listen to um, Aeon Byte 
and uh, Miguel does those, um, you know, those collages at the beginning I of the shows. And recently he did one with uh, one of my favorite movies, which is The Devil's Advocate with yes, he did. Keanu Reeves and, and Al Pacino. Yeah, and you know, the whole idea of, um, you know, this Eddie Barzoom character who's just constantly milking and milking and milking and, and, and thrusting and pumping and, and, and billing and feeding, you know? And, and I think that um, that's something that I, I feel like we're, we're coming towards the end of, you know? It's, it's this whole idea. And that, you know, I, I hate to lapse into this, but, you know, that's, you know, a very boomerish kind of, um, you know, mentality that everybody can be a tycoon and everybody can be a master of the universe. And you just... Sure. You just keep feeding off the tit until it's dried out and desiccated. And I think that, um, you know, I think we're, we're reaching the end of that. And, um, you know, there's plenty that you can say about the quote unquote millennials and stuff. But I think the fact that they, by and large, tend to reject that kind of thinking. Um, right. You know, even if they're not sure exactly what to, to, to replace it with. Um, you know, I, I think that's a step in the right direction. Um, you know, when everybody's feeding and milking and, and bleeding and, and mining and it, you know, it coarsens society and culture. And, and I think that so many of the kind of things that we look at today with, um, you know, the rates of depression and yeah uh, mental illness and 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 suicide and um you know the collapsing birth rates and the collapsing rates of marriage and just you know people just not being able to interact with each other anymore i think it's 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 the hangover from that eddie bar zoom mentality that you know i think is spelled out so well in that film so you know we're not quite sure what model to follow and we might have to go through the the, the, the agony and pain of of the the barzoom uh model collapsing you know which i don't think is going to be a, a a pretty or pleasant thing for any of us but um it, you know it just might it might have to be done it's almost like social chemotherapy you know that that the That's cancer awesome. has become has metastasized to such a point that the, the, you know, the, the, the host body is just riddled with tumors and, and something needs to be done right. to it's expel this cancer from the system, you know, from, yeah. to, to expel this cancer from the body politic, you know? Well, Randall Carlson talks about, you know, giant, you know, cycles of, you know, climate and it's very, very much in my line of thinking. It's the same thing. Uh, you know, Saturn has to come back around. The empire will rise. The empire will fall ideas all this change is basically what we're coming to with that concept like and um i wanted to kind of lead into this because it's funny you said millennials i'm like uh i'm in a weird like you know i'm already 40 onic enough uh but i'm in a weird kind of liminal uh millennium generation myself i'm a very old millennial right i'm like one of the first few years but we were the it gets cut off because we were the kind who did not have the full saturation of the internet effect that the other half of the millennials got. There is a distinguished marker, and I'm not going to get into all of that jazz. Uh, there's a few things we just won't be able to cover tonight, like Kyle Odom, 
but um, like there's so much, there's so so much. You know this, but uh, yeah. also Miguel, amazing, and I love him, and it was great to be like um, he invited me onto the first Heretics Anonymous, but I was not able to make it because I had this thing. The next one I got to be on was with Rest in Peace Tracy Twyman. Uh, that was oh wow, a- yeah. That was a powerful episode with uh, Alex Rivera, and um, we had some crazy Beatles syncs with uh, tulpas and uh, the Ledbetter's paintings in the uh, Anthropological Society. Uh, but uh, anyways, I, I know that we just should at least acknowledge the greatness that Tracy has brought to our community, whatever this is that we do, the people who know about this stuff. And yeah, I was been- friends with Tracy, so yes, I mean, yes. I've known her for a long time. So um, Yes. Um, you know, but one of the things that, that I've, you know, tried to tell people is that she was very troubled. Um, she was, um, before she, before, it's interesting because just, she had sort of disappeared for the last time. And that night that she disappeared, I was supposed to be on her show. And um, a week or so before that night, we had had a, um, we had talked on Skype for a few, like a couple hours. You know, we talked on Skype for a long time. We had a you know really good conversation, and um, you know we were talking about a lot of things, sort of bring things back to basics with like you know the Templars and a lot of the you know medieval stuff that she sort of cut her teeth on in the beginning. Um, you know, but Tracy was 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 a very troubled person, and and I, to be frank with you, I, I had some conversations with her over the years that um, were disturbing. Um, she had sort of a disturbing, um, paranoid view of the world that, um, you know, I think certainly manifested itself in her work, you know, um, but I think that, you know, that darkness, um, kind of overcame her and she wasn't, you know, she was mixed up in some really dodgy circles back in the 90s like you know people on like the extreme right um and then you know like this dragon society thing and that guy uh i think he hung himself um so you know i'm i'm very i I miss tracy very much and she was a brilliant person and a brilliant scholar and an incredible researcher absolutely but um she was a troubled woman and, and I don't think there's any, there's any getting around that. I mean, it's not something that you would necessarily um, sense if you were talking with her casually, but um, I remember like I had this one conversation with her and she was talking about how, you know, it's like we live in this bottle and this bottle is on this plane and we're sort of stuck in this bottle and we're looking at the bottle outside the ball and it was it was like really the, the most disturbing metaphor and and i was just it was unsettling to me and this was a lot this was back like 10 years ago so um she she was a troubled person and um it's it's really a shame and uh I, you know she was very brilliant and you know another thing that we had discussed um, quite a bit, uh, maybe about a year ago, is when she was discovering all these very sick and weird YouTube videos. And, um, you know, we had 
<clears throat> she and I had some conversations about that. And, and she's kind of vanished. And I, I think that she might have gotten on somebody's radar because I, I think these, I don't know what these, these videos are about, but they're very weird. And they almost remind me of like the, the ring video or something, you know, just like uh, yeah, yeah, weird, yes. sick, surreal. There's something wrong. Thing. There's something wrong. Yeah, very, like very, very, very wrong. wrong. And and that to me is like, I, I think you know. So people talk about like a lot of things, Illuminati or, or so on and so forth. Yeah, you know, yeah, but like yeah. I, I think you know, there's a more kind of immediate danger from just like these very small but highly motivated groups of, of psychopaths, really. I mean, that's, that's kind of the best way to put it, or sociopaths. You're people who have, um, who congregate in small groups, but you know, are very highly organized and use things like those videos to kind of communicate with each other. Um, we're talking about people who thrive on the suffering of the of the conscious beings, whatever suffering this. We're talking yeah, about yeah, like one psychopath is is dangerous, but like two psychopaths is like is a corporation times as dangerous. You know what I'm saying? It's the yeah, no, you're correct because like mental. What do they call it? Like, but the same rule applies for positive thought. Of course, there are people who do those mental. What do they call that? Like Mitch Horowitz talks about these things. Napoleon Hill masterminds and groups like this. Yeah. Well, you know, it's what's called the force multiplier. Yes, of course. Yes, yes. And that's important well, to remember because, you know, we can do good things if we can focus. We, it's, it's about signal. It's about tuning in to a, a paradigm that, you know, we would like. And that's why I think it's important to remember individuals must be strong as individuals, but together strong, healthy, mind you, healthy-minded and loving individuals could build something useful even as temporary as we are. Um, could I maybe, uh, but I don't mean to segment, do you, but do you have, do you want to respond to that before I turn quickly? Uh, did, no, go ahead. Go on to next point that, does, does that make sense what I just said though? Sure. Yeah. Um, let, okay, let's talk about a troubled, uh, I don't mean to do it like, I love you, Tracy. God bless you in this, in wherever you are. I hope that your soul is at peace. Now, that being said, Liz Frazier. Born the day after Tracy Twyman, another woman who has had some very interesting life experiences with darkness, with trauma, but also with this, she made art that has impacted you and I personally. I don't know if it's impacted you a little bit more than me, probably. Cough, wink, nudge, entire obsessive fan base and religion started in Chris's name. Anyways, so the strawberry lady. Mrs. Strawberry, that Darkdale Cooper, you know, Mr. Tell me about Mr. Strawberry. That's interesting, right? But what's what's the deal with Liz Frazier in the Millennium Dome too? Please add that as part of this if you can, and maybe some spray paint by not Banksy. But yeah, can you tell us a little bit about this woman who sings and just give you know that people are probably familiar at this point, so maybe tie some stuff in that you want to say now that might be even newish. Because I think a lot of people. Well, I, it's it's a it's a bottomless rabbit hole. Sure, sure, sure. It's it's a bottomless rabbit hole. Yes. And the thing that's you know amazing to me. So, I had sort of in the very early days of the blog, I'd sort of talked about like the Jeff Buckley stuff and the siren stuff, and yes, a lot of people have picked up on that since then. Um, even like mainstream sources have picked up on that, and you, it, okay. it's not something that I really spent a lot of time thinking about until. Like in 2014, I'd done a, th a three-part series on this. And it's, it's not until like, 
so I've been like everybody else and assumed that there are no lyrics. It's just sort of nonsense syllables. But then you realize there are a lot of these songs actually do have lyrics. And, you know, some of the earlier songs, the lyrics, you know, are pretty easy to decipher, pretty easy to hear. And the thing that I went back, because, you know, even in 2014, I didn't know as much about ritual magic and, you know, people like Crowley and, and people like Kenneth Grant as I did um, in 2014. Um, and, and I just looked at these lyrics. I'm like, this is all black magic, the Garland's album. And this is like really specific black magic. It's, you know, body, you know, not to be too explicit, but it's body fluid kind of stuff. And um, it's, it's somebody who knows what they're talking about, knows what they're singing about. And that changed everything for me. I'm like, oh, wait a second. You know, how did she know this? You know, she was 17 years old when she wrote the songs. How did she know about this stuff that, you know, is taken in, in some cases verbatim from Kenneth Grant books and stuff. And that just was like changed everything for me. And, but I was able to sort of put it, I did those three, those three pieces, fairly big pieces at that time and, and, and went into a lot of detail and just thought, okay, well, I've exhausted that well spring, you know, on to the next topic. And people were writing to me over the years and saying, oh, you know, I really like that. And, you know, are you going to pick that up again? You know, the, the anniversary of Jeff Buckley's death is coming up and everything like that. And I was like, what am I going to say? You know, I, I said everything then. And then, um, you know, within the 24-hour period, Chris Cornell died. Yes. Um, Twin Peaks, The Return premiered. Yes. And tickets went on sale for her appearance at the Royal Albert Hall right. on July 23rd of that year. So that happened within a 24-hour period. Those yeah. three things happened. And that just, like, that was the dam breaking. Yes. Um, you know, I didn't realize that the cracks were, had been forming over the past three years. And I hadn't really been paying attention because I had more than enough problems of my own to deal with. And then the dam broke. And then, and then I sort of understood that, that, you know, he was very close to Jeff Buckley and sort of became like his executor, you know, in, in a way, you know, he was, he was handling a lot of the work with the, the reissues and, and the um, compilations, uh, you know, the posthumous compilations and stuff. Sure. So yeah. that just like, you know, that just set the whole thing. And I, I don't know, it's just, you know, something that I, hadn't given any thought to in the past three years um just suddenly came rushing forth and you know since that time of you know we're, we're talking may of 1997 of uh, 2017 sure. uh, you know, two years ago now mm -hmm. um it's just been one thing after another and it, and it never ends and there's no bother we had to have you say it during the episode at some point it never ends it doesn't and, <laughs> and, and it's interesting so so here's the thing i mean Back in the 80s, okay, so, you know, I've told a story, and, you know, people who read the blog will be familiar with the story. So when I first heard her voice was in, uh, I guess, 36 years now ago, wow. it, because it was uh, when uh, Sunburst and Snowblind came out in November of, of 1983, and I heard the voice. They played from the Flagstones. And from the Flagstones. I, I knew it. 
I knew yeah, it was, that yeah. song wasn't on for a minute before I called the radio station. It's like, you have to tell me right now what this is, or I will come there and I will kill you. Yeah. you know it's like, I, it was, I couldn't believe it. Oh. So, so, and then, but it, it's funny because like I'd gotten a couple of records and then I kind of put it aside cause I was like hanging around the hardcore scene and listening to the clash and all this kind of stuff. Oh, oh yeah. And you then, can't let them see you listening to that though. Honestly. Yeah. 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 It was just not, it was, it was, it just was not done. So then in 1986, um, you know, that's, that's sort of when like it, it you know, the, the whole thing sort of came into my life and, and, uh, you know, that was Victoria land, right? That was right, right after Victoria land was released. Well, yeah, it was, but I hadn't heard that album at that point in time. A friend of mine had made me like a compilation of like a bunch of the EPs and the Pink Opaque. Yes. And I, re I remember I was walking through this like Elysian field um, in, in New Jersey near my house. I mean, this huge rolling field that, you know, looks like the fields of heaven. I was walking through this field and I was thinking about one of their songs and I was just like, she is an angel. And this is like some, her, you know, herald, you know, like she's heralding like the, the arrival of the angels to this realm. I mean, it just, you know, like, it's something to that. That it's like the OA almost. Like, this is like this is like this is it. Like something is happening that is being announced to this music. It's just it just struck me, and it was just like such a clear vision. So, and you know everything that I got into as far as I don't know spirituality or, or synchronicity or magic or you name it all sprang from, from, from her, from that music. It, you know, it, it, I, I wasn't into that stuff before that period. It just like, it just opened the skies for me. And, and then, but then that sort of faded and things just sort of, you know, ran their course. But again, like this whole thing, when Chris Cornell died, which was kind of like an epical moment for me, because it was just like, just kind of one of those moments where it's like this is like the the death knell for generation x you know like you know my cohort the people that i sort of came up with and and i really felt like a real kinship with him because you know i remember when i was in high school and i was playing music like i i was kind of an imagine i was imagining a band that would be would have been a lot like uh soundgarden you know i i, I had this whole idea of art metal and art metal was not a phrase that had been used or known you know in in the 80s or the early 80s it's just it's just not something that people said i mean people say it all the time now but that's kind of like this idea that i had was this whole idea of art metal and um by the way that's very you i mean i just just for what it's worth yeah well but you know he he, he had the wherewithal and this that incredible voice to to make it happen and i didn't and i went off and did something else but like i was kind of like you know i was writing a lot of songs like in high school like kind of like working along those same kind of lines that, that, that he was much better at and would have much greater success. But would you say there was like a kind of a dark, bleak metaphysic, like kind of like, you know what I mean? Like, or well, what? see, the thing is, is that, you, you know, it's I, I want to talk about like, you know, so I've got this novel now called He Will Live Up in the Sky. Okay. <laughs> and I started, I started writing it in 2015 and I'd actually, you know, I posted into in march of 2015 saying you know i've got this book and i've got most of the plot done nice. i mean i you know i i've done a lot of changes but like so i had this idea of this very sound garden kind of band um where the singer goes missing and a lot of the kind of see that was another reason why you know his death was 
so impactful to me because I kind of been writing it. I kind of been imagining it in this book that I was working on two years before his death, uh, more than two years before his death. So, um, you know, things really kind of coalesced and um, it's, it's a bottomless, um, it's just a bottomless wellspring. And, and just this past, you know, just a few weeks ago, when I when I saw a massive attack at, at Radio City Music Hall, jealous by the way. Yeah, and they had that big finish with Group Four, and that whole, you know, very MK Ultra kind of um, video presentation by Adam Curtis, and um, you know, you see her on stage, <clears throat> you see her on stage singing, and the, the lyrics of that song are really interesting because she's kind of talking about how she is psychic. You know, she's talking about her sixth sense, and you know closing her eyes and seeing sort of the edges of things you know the lyrics are very interesting so she's singing these lyrics and behind her you know the band is just hammering away like nine inch nails i mean they were incredibly loud i mean you wouldn't think that you'd go see massive attack and they're like ministry or something and it was like really loud the music was really loud it was kind of surprising and and then you have this like all like literally all hell breaking loose on on the video screen behind her and it's just like oh wait so in 1986, like when I heard this music, I kind of imagined that she was like heralding this, you know, this moment. Revelation-ish. Yeah, this, this whole idea of revelation and, and the apocalypse. Yes. And, and then I'm seeing like it, you know, played out right there in real time, just what, six weeks ago now? Like six slamming your soul through your body while it's happening. Like really. Yeah, so... You know, and I've put a lot of, and I just, uh, you know, I don't know if people care or get it. I mean, whatever. I mean, but it's just like, this is the wellspring. This is the, the, the mother load of syn synchromysticism as far as I'm concerned. It for sure is. Yeah, and, like, you know, so you asked about the, the, the Millennium Dome show. Yes, yes, yes. So the Millennium Dome show was 20 years ago now, right? Yes. And, um, and it's basically, um, you know, I call it like, uh, yeah. So uh, I call it like, um, you know, Alex Jones or Bill Cooper's worst nightmares come true because yeah. you know, for 999 performances, you have, you know, humans and the, the demons of the air and the destruction of the tower and, you know, played out two or three times a day in this yes. millennium dome. In Greenwich, you know, I mean, it's just that the symbolism is just so incredibly loaded. Yes. You know, and who do they get to play the character who blows up the tower? They get her. Yeah, of course. So in 20, so this, this, this very weird feeling that I got in 1986, you know, replays itself in 1999 and then again in 2019. So it's, it isn't just me. It no, isn't just me not. who senses this. But that's you know, why it, David Lynch wanted to use her. And, and that's, I'm not saying we're not going to talk about Liz Frazier. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah, um, well, you know, I mean, David Lynch, you know, I mean, he, you know, the, the whole idea of Lost Highway, where it's the two realities overlapping. One of my favorite movies by and, him. By and, and, you know, and, and reality sort of invading one another and and who's who's the who sings that into to existence so it's like That's you know meaningful. i think a lot of people think i'm just on this weird fanboy jag and no, you know, dude you're fucking onto something you really are 
and I keep trying to explain to people, you know, it isn't just me who, who notices this and no, you, know, you should probably pay attention to this. And, um, you know, the, you just said the people don't talk about it. You said there are people ahead. who don't talk. Yeah, but just a quick point. You'd say that there are people who don't talk about it. And then there are people maybe who like, maybe you're just discovering, like, you know how like different directors use different things in movies to talk to each other. Like there's like director language and green language of film and stuff like that. So for mm-hmm. different, you know, there's Venn diagrams like Robert Anton Wilson, like the Illuminati is not one group. It's like different interested groups and it's chaos in that way, kind of. But, like, I guess, like, what I'm saying is just, like, how can I say this? What you're picking up on, like, with the asterisms in Beauty and the Beast and these different, like, patterns that we can see and now it never ends, are we picking up or, and specifically, are you picking up in your writing? I'm not going to say as an oeuvre, as, a, as your overall thing, but, like, are you possibly picking up on this, like, subconscious language and you're just able to express to us what's kind of happening before things manifest you're saying hey look in the pre whatever you know how people believe in like levels of manifestation so it has to happen here then it happens here then it happens here it's Mm -hmm. like maybe you're talking about the blood and guts behind the flesh of reality you know i don't i don't even think of it in those terms because i'm just like so there's a lot of stuff that I've discovered that I don't, I don't talk about, that I don't blog about because I, I don't think it's appropriate, but it, it all sort of connects to this. And, um, you know, just in the past week, there's just been an avalanche of it. And then I, how can I explain this without explaining it? So, you know, I, I've sort of been on this, this jag this past week, you know, a very important part of this whole story and then I go to a certain source and find, you know, that's the thing about, about this whole thing. You know, A, it never ends. And B, it's, it's all been hiding in plain sight. You know, I'm not, all the information that I'm gathering, it's all publicly available. And it's, it's been publicly available for a long time. It's just that nobody's put the pieces together because nobody would think to look. Like, why would you think to look at this, you know, obscure person, this, this this person who most people have never even heard of but you know yes. you know what i mean but then you notice that the people who do know about it who do know about her um recognize the same things that i do and like i said when i saw this whole thing with massive attack and this big finish you know like the last two minutes you see just like all these scenes uh news you know news footage of of massive riots and, and street battles and everything and like literally almost as soon as that tour ended street violence and riots broke out literally all over the world you know you chile lebanon yes you know uh you know of course france and, and hong kong but you know all these other places are iraq right you know, so like just as soon as that tour ends, you know, this, this whole sort of valedictory message, you know, this, this prophecy spelled out or this prediction or this predictive programming spelled out like right in front of your face, like then it, it, it happens everywhere. And that's, you know, I, I just can't seem to get people to understand that. It's monkey see this, monkey. This do is on about it. things yeah. that actually happen, you know, are, are actually happening now. This isn't about some weird jag that I was on, 
35 years ago. It's not it's archaic. Not, it's contemporary. Yeah, it's, it's, it's happening now. Yes. You know, for instance, you know, this whole thing with the impeachment and, and the Halloween impeachment. But, you know, when did that start? That started on the 24th of September when she was singing a mile and, you know, seven-tenths of a mile away from Capitol Hill at, at the anthem. I mean, that day. Yeah. And you just think, and you know, so many things like that happened during the month of September, you know, like the, the hurricanes and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, well, can we tie it into how they have a freaking album? Like, so first of all, it started the precursor with Warner Bros. putting all of their stuff. It was lauded. They could get all of their films onto one water droplet using some kind of technology. Then you have Massive Attack literally saying in a spray can that they have yeah. an album. So, so, so if, if we are, you know, and people like to say it's not even new age, there's, you know, we are water, we are, you know, it's magic spells and we are spelling and we are what we hear and it's the sword and the stone. I, I think you'll like this, Chris, the sword and the stone, take the S's, the word and the tone. It's not what you said. It's how you said it. Hmm. Mm, that's great. I and like that. I'm going to steal that, buddy. Oh, <laughs> All right, well, it's a little little credit if you don't mind. And you 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 actually have the cool thing about too. It's like um the air and the earth too. And there's a mystery about the elements of earth and air and the impact of what you say and the material ramification. So the sword and the stone. And by the way, I didn't even think about it that way until I just made that up on the spot right there. I tell you, my friend, my Pisces rising sign makes it so if I get out of my own way, then I'm good. That's one thing. Just get, anyways. I think you understand to, uh, what I mean by that. But um, here's here's the thing. Um, I do wanna I do wanna say that like, what time period? That is at least one hundred and eleven years in the past. Would you most like to live? Isn't that a strange question? <laughs> It is. Um, <laughs> it's a good question. Um, well, I, I probably would have, you know, been really interested to be in like Alexandria in like the early imperial era, you know, when there were all these different religions bouncing around, when everything was just sort of melding into each other you know and you had serapis and you had christianity and you had judaism like all just sort of bouncing around each other and and gelling into you know the religions that we'd come to know because neither christianity nor judaism were in recognizable forms at that time you know they, they both changed drastically after that period so I, I would have liked to have been there to see that. I think that would have been pretty fascinating. And, it, you know, it's probably a pretty fascinating city with the library and the, the lighthouse and all that good stuff. You're speaking my language, my friend. Yeah, I probably, yeah, that's, that's probably, yeah. But then again, you know, I, maybe I would have liked to have been in like, you know, it's, it's interesting. The Middle Ages gets a bad rap, but, um, you know, a lot of serious medieval scholars said, you don't understand those people. The medieval her, surf had it much better than you know somebody working for a corporation does today. <laughs> they had a lot more free time. You know they ate better, they got more exercise, they got more sun. You know th what what had happened is that you know with the Enlightenment, it became like a real sort of effort, you know, on the part of a lot of these propagandists to sort of badmouth the medieval era. But I, I think that um, 
you know, 11th, 12th century, you know, when, when um, you had a lot of interesting literature coming out of the, uh, the monasteries and you had a lot of sort of the mystic teachers, Hildegard of Bingen and, and people like that, you know, it was, that was a, a, a very interesting period that I'd like to have been uh, around to see as well. My mom's a medieval uh, medieval scholar, but just to throw that in there, you uh, oh, cool. very lovely, smart lady, born the, born the day of Tracy Twyman, by the way. My mom's birthday is the same as Tracy, so that was a... That, you know, what day is that again? Uh, so, tra so this is all weird because you said Pink Opaque in New Jersey. My girlfriend's first album was really uh, Pink Opaque, and uh, she's... I hope to God she's not going to kill me. Well, anyways, let's just say she's definitely not born the same day as Liz Frazier, my girlfriend. You know what I mean? But um, so Tracy Twyman and my mom were born the same day. They're all born around that same period. But that's August 28th, August 29th period right there. Mm. But um, mm. okay. sorry, why did I? I'm sorry. I suddenly got myself distracted. But why did I bring that up quickly? What was the connection to? You were talking about the medieval. Yes, my mom. As a, she named my brother Jeffrey uh, after Chaucer. So like she's super nerdy. I want to ask you a quick random question. Like I, this is something I serious. I, I don't care what this. Okay. Dinosaurs, right? Any possibility they could have been, because we're talking about this period of time and history getting occluded. Any possibility that dinosaurs, like we're not going to talk about moon landings, not being what they think, right? Any possibility that dinosaurs might not, but you know, is there a different story? We have skeletons that have disappeared into the oceans, perhaps of different sizes of humans. I'm asking a genuine question here. Jurassic Park's great propaganda, right? But are they dragons? Like what, what, you know, I'm, I'm, I just asked that. I literally fucking just asked that. I, I got cojones to ask that. What do you think, man? I don't, I don't, I don't think Crazy about it. Shit, right? I don't think about it. Um, I really don't. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I don't, I don't really think about, you know, sure. like the whole thing, like say like the thing with flatters that are flatter. Exactly. Above, exactly. Does it matter? Like what no. difference does it make in my life? You know? And that's the thing, you know, getting beyond epistemology, getting beyond ontology, getting beyond this need to, you know, let's say the earth is flat. Does it change your experience of it in any way? No, it really doesn't. Well, we, I, I, that's a nuanced conversation to some degree if we want to go down that. But for now, like, but the thing that made people like Loy Pie great was that like he got really into these weird like things about like what our origins or like the star child or like what this could mean for us, like these strange skulls, you know? And I think- Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's important that it gives you more things to, to, you know, it gives you more things to, to factor into your experience of life. But it's like, say with the Lloyd Pye stuff, you know, I thought his stuff was really fascinating. Did I find a lot of it convincing in some ways? Yes. And in some ways, no. Um, you know, I, I don't really go for the Sitchin stuff. I don't think that Sitch, I think that Sitchin was a very poor scholar. I think he was a poor translator. And um, do, do, do I think, you know, do I throw the baby out with the bathwater? Do I think, you know, all that material is, is useless? No, I don't. But, you know, I, I've said for years that I'm not a Sitchinite. and I don't really subscribe yeah. to, to his, his way of interpreting like the Enuma Elish or something. I mean, because I just, certainly I some of that influenced the X-Files uh, to some degree. Because well, of course. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And yeah, I, I mean, wanted very to, heavily influenced. I wanted to bring up like, uh, especially the fifth season episode. And I love that I can do this with you. It's like, you get, it's like trading like X-Men, you know, you know, all the, so fifth season, we had that episode with the Seraphim, right? And she had, you know, mm. four different, yeah, 
and they also had the uh, uh, extra digits, of course, which if you're familiar with like the polydactyl. And so they have four extra, which is like the four angels of the anyway. So I'm wondering because one toe, one yeah, 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 yeah. So and also I'm wondering though, like um, if you're familiar, just not to just get off, but like, do you know um, Gravity Falls by any chance? The TV show Gravity Falls. Have you heard of this? It's kind of like an X Files y cartoon, Twin Peaksy cartoon. It's the only reason I've heard you, about it. I've never seen it. There's a character it. with six fingers, and that's the only reason I wanted to tie this around to like this idea of like obviously the Bible is one of the most profound and important books in human history, at least in this current age. And I want to ask you a little bit what your take on these ideas, because we have the missing skeletons. What are in bloodlines we talk about and things like, you know, families of ancient renown, old, old money. Um, What is the Nephilim and what in what are the different ways of seeing these things? And since space travel might not be what we think it am. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm going to um, I'm going to. Uh, but what's the Nephilim? And I'm going to answer that question and 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 by um, almost uh, disregarding it in some ways, but answering it in another way. Okay. You, you talked about the um, the the. Um, the fifth season of the X-Files, um, you know, we have that mythology um, two-parter uh, in the middle of the season with Cassandra Spender. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the bridge. Who, and, uh, yeah. You know, who's the oracle, you know, is the prophet. And um, <laughs> the actress who plays her is from, um, is from Bristol, which, uh, you know, a certain uh, singer of, uh, of note that we might have discussed uh, previously. No, uh, I don't, it's no connection at all. No connection at all. And, and, um, and, and then there was, um, and then there was uh, Gibson Praise at the, uh, at the end of the season, you know, who's sort of like, you know, he's the missing link. Um, Which their son turns into later with Ghoulie and stuff. Like they really rehashed the whole damn thing in the last season. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, oh but you know, the interesting thing is that Gibson is, is, um, is derived from the um, the German name Giselbert. So yes, his name yes. is Giselbert Praise, um, which uh, I always found uh, rather amusing. So um, the way to answer that... You had that in your blog post, of course, right? That what you did bring that... Yeah, up. a long time ago. Yes. Yeah, a long time ago. So um, the way to answer that is just like, um, you know, maybe answering another question is that... Um, I think, you know, really what we're dealing with here might be the same thing and it might be like, okay, so if you look at Crowley and if you look at Grant and you look at that, that all those people, um, really what the whole point of, of that, and, you know, and Crowley said it explicitly and, and, and Grant did as well, is that the whole point is that um, they needed or they wanted to um, contact entities outside of human reality yes in, in such a way that these entities could become embodied yes in people yes yes so both um cassandra spender and gibson praise are are embodiments of this because cassandra spender is you know she is the one who um is supposed to trigger the alien apocalypse because she is the blend you know she she how she's got a human body but she houses the alien 
Oh, you mean the sky yeah. people, the sky people with the earth people? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I mean. And, and, and the same Walk-ins. thing is, so we have two characters that are both describing, you know, the same phenomenon where, you know, the sky people and the earth people are blended as one. And, and this, you know, is meant to um, trigger this, um, this apocalyptic scenario. And, and, but this ties into, you know, what Crowley, you know, was trying to say in the book of the law, you know, Crowley in his own sort of garbled roundabout misunderstanding history, misunderstanding ancient religion kind of way. But, you know, when a, a, a body or an entity outside of human existence or human reality is, can somehow become embodied in a human body, when, when those two can be combined, um, that is uh, the beginning of the process. You know, that's the beginning of the process that um, you know people would say was described in the Book of Revelation. So, um, which is fascinating because we have talks about seals with entities and talking about seals coming undone. Well, so so what I'm what I'm saying is that you know when you ask me, I love that episode of the X Files because I always saw that as like. You know, that's how Scully is experiencing this whole war in heaven that, that Mulder sees as aliens. So Mulder sees this all in like a sci-fi, aliens, E.T., Close Encounters, I mean, all that kind of stuff. You know, he sees it in that context, but she's seeing it in, in the form of uh, this heretical, apocryphal religion. And, you know, that's sort of a through line with her character throughout the series. So... That would be my answer. I, I love that character, by the way, um, Father Gregory. Absolutely phenomenal character. Oh, yeah. That great character. I mean, I love that episode. A lot of fans don't like it at all. I mean, a lot of fans hate it. But I, that's I thought, absurd. They don't understand the X-Files if they don't like it. I'm sorry. That's, yeah, that's they don't. No, they, you're absolutely right. They don't understand if they don't like that episode because it's, 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 it's to me, it's a pivotal episode. And I think it's a, a It is. It is. And it can be summed up in the moment when she saw the seraphim in the parking lot. Oh yeah, I love that scene. When it, when it cut to commercial, you know, there's something transcendent about that scene. Um, yeah. I'll and tell you, so goddamn beautiful in that entire season. Oh my god! And when they're doing the confession scene with the light on her, with the confession booth, the the soft, yeah, yeah. the grid, yeah, yeah. Oh man. Okay, yeah. You know what? If there was a celebrity death match in a weird way of like, it's like it would be that version of Scully, and for you, it would be what Winona Ryder from. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, what I call peak pretty Winona. Peak pretty Winona. I love how you call. It. Yes. Um, it's like peak oil, but peak. Anyways. Um. Yeah. So, let's see here. Uh, by the way, I wanted to say that that part of the X Files, when they're leading up to the end with Gibbs and Price, well, oh my God. Um, those like, uh, what was it called? Uh, the Pine Bluff variant. Phenomenal. That's the entire. I mean. Uh, the only thing I don't like about that entire, I think that's entire season is just absolutely genius and just. You're say Chinga? <laughs> well, Chinga's not great, but um, also <laughs> if the first episode with all those voiceovers, I mean, if you could like figure out a way to get rid of all those voiceovers, I think it would be a pretty good episode. But it's like, oh, remind me, remind me, just jog my memory. What what's the first? Uh... Well, basically, Mulder just walking around the Pentagon, you know, and seeing all the stuff. But it's just it's it's a hard, it's very unmemorable episode. It's just one purple prose monologue oh, yeah. 
can I can I tell you what? Um, I, I what about what about like because like you're the man to ask for this, and I think we could probably you know because like dude, when I was out in Minnesota, my dad, who's a pastor by the way, I thought you would like that. I'm the son of a preacher man. Um, like in Minnesota, preacher man and a medieval scholar. Wow. No, my mom. Yeah, right. Is, is there a is there a joke and like guy walks into a bar? Guy walks into a metaphysical, aromatic demiurge prison. Soul walks into a de- you got you got the joke. So the point is, is that uh, episodes like um, hot take right now because it can change from time to time. And now we do have season ten and eleven, but hot take like give me two or three of the ultimate best and. Then I'm gonna hope to hear a certain one. But go, I want to hear this. Ultimate best what episodes? And uh, fine, fine. To make it easy, how about two myth arc and two non myth arc? Because that should uh, div- pare it down a bit. Well, I, 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 my favorite episode of all time is Christmas Carol, Christmas Carol. Um, which is the fifth season. Um, when my Scully brain, discovers her brain. daughter. Why am I? Ha- yeah, please. Sorry, my brain's having a block right now. Uh, Scully goes back to San Diego. Oh, oh, oh. I, that, that, I mean, that wrecked me. I thought we're You are a sentimental and compassionate. Let's just bring it down to one. I mean, I think the best, um, best Powerful. non, I mean, the best myth arc for me would probably be the um, Anasazi paperclip, you know, that, that three-parter blessing with paper paperclip. Those freaking aliens in the subway car when at Chris when I so I was starting to say I used to watch X Files as a kid out on VHS tapes in Minnesota like I could binge watch, and um those aliens scurrying right the trapped they look like little trapped children in a box car man that give me the heebie jibbies I'm serious that was oof. I couldn't. I I had to like when I'm watching it I did this I would like cover my eyes watching the show I I was like doing that. Oh, and uh, let me just add a quick non sequitur. I was JJ and I were in the subway the other day, and we saw this weird uh, on the red line heading away from South Station to go to Park Street. Saw this wicked weird advertisement on the on the T line. It was for the food bank, and this it, all it is is a picture of like JJ will remember. It says like looking for interesting fun times, and then it had a woman's face doing this. So basically the notion I show Chris is she's covering half of her face with both of her hands, flashing one eye straight at you. And this is literally, a, I'll send up a picture of this with the podcast because it's worth it. This is, abs- this is talking about Liz, Fra- like the Millennium Dome is like echoing. Like it's absurd, like looking for a good time. The Boston Food Bank, Illumin, it's a real thing that happened. So I, I thought you would appreciate yeah, that's that. Very, that's very strange. Weird, right, dude? I'll send it to you. But um, so- yeah. Anasazi paper. No, so anyway, so the best non-myth arc episode yeah, yeah, for yeah. me personally, um, I think would be Paper Hearts. Oh, yeah, man, John. He was the other guy. Um, the one who was um the serial killer who was actually a serial killer, Wade Lee Boggs, and uh the John Lee. Um, what was the one in Paper Hearts? Roach. John Lee Roach was in Paper Hearts. That's right. Yeah, dude. And I don't like how I'm obsessed with Alice. My guitar's name is Alice. I got Alice everywhere. It's my favorite book. And my middle name is Lee. I don't know. It's too weird. Anyways, I, that is such a wonderful... It's an opera. It starts off with that little red dot. And like it's like you're actually going through a magical journey when you're in at least the beginning of that. Very, very darkly tense episode. 
Yeah, it's um, it, it's amazing. Um, also, a Samantha episode in a way, but like in a weird like Dimension B Samantha episode. Mm, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's carry on and get towards the. We're reaching the the stretches here. Favorite? No, I just mentioned this is synchronicity. I just said this, so um, I just said it's like what I said, like an opera play. So I just said my fourth question, my friend. What is your favorite opera play or musical? I do not have one. That's also a fair answer. Like, yeah, I, 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 um, I hate opera. Um, I grew up. Um, my my mother did a lot of musical theater. She and she did a lot of musical theater songs and because you know, she was a nightclub singer, but she also did a lot of musical theater. So uh, I knew a lot of musicals, but uh, I don't like musicals either. I guess my favorite musical might be The Wicker Man, probably, because that's pretty much a musical. That's an awesome fucking answer, dude. Yeah, that's, that would, that would awesome. be my favorite musical. But I, I, I don't like musicals and I don't like opera, so. Yeah. Uh, it just, you know, it takes me out of the story when people just, you know, start singing. You know, doing like a big sort of production number, you know, especially if it's preceded by like a dramatic moment. I'm just like, no, no, that's not going to work for me. I'm sorry. It works in The Simpsons, maybe, but I, I just I don't I don't think that way. Yeah, um, that's like no, that's a solid answer. Uh, what about um, best comfort food? Um, your favorite comfort food? I guess spaghetti. Like spaghetti on a on a on a um like a cold rainy night. That's pretty comforting. Spaghetti and meatballs with a you know, big thing of spinach. Do you cook that with butter? The spinach. Um, you don't really need to. You know, if you're serving it with like your sauce or something, so you know you get you get plenty of flavor. You don't necessarily need the butter, but you could. I guess. I don't know. You are part Portuguese, of course. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a, very much a mutt. Ah, yes. In a lot of ways, Boston um, Mutt Club. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but there is some uh, Portuguese on, on my father's side. Um, you, uh, I no Irish in you whatsoever. That's, that's obviously just. Uh, the, the, Why is that obvious? No, no. I'm being sarcastic. Is why oh. it's, it's not translating. It's not. I'm, oh. I'm joking. That's that's. Yeah, anyways, so that. Why, why, why is it? Why why would it be obvious? You have, not, I'm saying you do have Irish in you. It's obvious that you do have Irish. I was joking. I was. Like, why? But but why would you think that it's it's obvious? I'm I'm not. What, oh, like, I don't I'm know. Not, like I have some in me, and I can recognize it in you. It's the best I can say. Okay. I have, I'm a mutt. I'm, I'm all four of the islands. I'm, you, uh, what do you call it? UK or England, Wales, Scottish, and Irish. I have all four of those. I have Scandinavian, German, and Jewish, and that's me. I'm a quarter Jew, and the rest of that is all the whiteness and such. But I wasn't, I wasn't, I hope you don't take that the wrong way. I don't mean that anything wrong. I was trying to, it was, I was joking and it didn't come off the right way. But well, no. you know, it's interesting because um, there's no a lot offense. of. What's, no, but, but it's interesting because um, the, the Irish in, in me, um, the original, uh, I guess the original family, because they, they intermarried with the Irish, but um, 
original family were Normans, but then they're like, there's Normans on, on my, in my mother's side, you know, there's a lot of, um, so it isn't just like Irish or English or French or whatever, you know, whatever part of the country or the world these, these people will come, but, but they all, there's a lot of Normans in, in my, uh, my background and in my wife's background too as, as well, which is interesting. So anyway. There's so much about the history that we also don't know. Like just to the general thing, like you people get these ancestry degree thing. What are they? Ancestry.com things. And first of all, you get like this vague percentage and then they'll update it a few years later. And I really think that like the data itself is, so that whole thing's a wash. I really realized just like with history, here's where we're going with this. I really don't have that much of a clue of how far, far things go back. You know, we can get maybe this far, this far. But even that gets lost into history in a way. But you know what? It doesn't. It doesn't matter. Like it does. It just. You know. Like I, I ancestry was a kind of thing. You know. Like it's a kind of thing that like was important to people. Like when I was growing up, right? But you know, what was even more important. Like whether you were like Catholic or Jewish or Protestant, it's like your religion was more important than your ancestry when yeah. when, when I was growing up. And right. that was like more, that was more of like a tribal organizing principle was religion then. Well, people would talk to each other differently back then too, as far as I understand. Like, and it, you know, there was kind of like a. Now we're all hypersensitive, and you know what I'm talking about. Like, you would like different groups addressing different groups sharply, but still respectfully in a way. Well, you know, I've I've always had friends from a lot of different backgrounds, Same. and you know, when I when I connect with people, I don't think like, oh, well they're this background or this, you know, like I think it's interesting and important and, and I went you know I sort of went through a period where I was really kind of investigating this but now it's not important to me at all it, it really isn't it just it just doesn't matter you know what I mean because I, I just think people are people you know? oh well that's that's what intelligent and heartfelt and you know thoughtful people tend to have the opinion of but um in my opinion your opinion is that way uh i think people are people we're drawn together in this way by not the boundaries of those superficial external things but by the interests and by the actions and by the actual intentions of people that's i, I think it, i think it, you know i think it even goes deeper than that because go ahead yeah you know like you know people that i've, I've been close to in the yeah, you know, I really connect with it's. It, you know, it's it's on a deeper level. It's like on a soul level. Yeah. Yes, and, I understand. And I, I think that um, you know, a lot of the people that I'll really connect with, you know, like I sort of see them as like, you know, liminal people, like you know, existing in a world that is is kind of not they're not native to, I guess you would say. I, it's hard to describe, but it's like the people that I've really connected with, you know, are people who don't fit in and sort of occupy these interesting spaces between polarities, I guess you would say. You're saying that their fellow pilgrims or travelers are this esoteric path, but basically, you don't have time for people who aren't willing to explore things that are hidden be you know you have a deep need for whatever it is that is being expressed to have some tie back into what this behind the veil is well i, I think it really what it really boils down to 
you know, it's kind of my Gnostic thinking, you know, and, and the idea that the Gnostics see themselves as being yes. visitors in a way, you know, being sort of, um, in this world, but not of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, being, you know, alien. Yeah. For lack of a better term, but you know, not in a science fiction dumbed down kind of way, but being, I don't know, like on a deeper level. And like, you know, like actually about, not from here, but like trapped here for now. Well, like, you know, I've never really been able to relate to people who identify with some sort of identity, you know, people, people who like define themselves in relation to a larger group. You know, I, 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 I'm not saying that I see these people as, as enemies or adversaries in any way, but I just, I can't relate to that kind of thinking, you know? And, um, and it isn't just because of identity politics. It's just the way I've always been, you know, the people that I've always gravitated towards are people who don't fit in and sort of exist in these, these liminal spaces between identity groups, I guess you would say. Well, the liminal spaces are also where things are the most interesting too. So yeah, there's, I don't know. I'm just making that up, but that, that might be true. <laughs> no, I think that's pretty well acknowledged here. <laughs> Good. Then I didn't make that up. Good. Um, let's see about um, hopes for human consciousness in this world. That's a question. What are your hopes for human consciousness in this world? Um, I, I guess maybe deeper compassion and just... Um, being conscious of things that are not explicit or obvious, you know, being conscious of, of realities beneath realities. Um, it's getting late. Surely. Uh, yeah. So I just, that was my last question, actually. Okay. That was, well, that's, that's my last answer. <laughs> it should be Chris. We can wrap this up for now and carry on another time because I think, um, you know, I don't know. I'm a, my, my, my shit's all about to get all amped up, but I don't want to end with any kind of pretense. I just want to say, man, it's been a real fucking pleasure talking with you. And oh, absolutely. You're, easy to, you're really easy to get along with and you're really smart and you're kind. So thank you for being on the Six of Swords, episode 12. Uh, it, was a, it was an honor and a privilege, sir. Well, wasn't that nice? I told you it was nice. It was... <laughs> ma'am. I think we're getting somewhere. I really do. And I mean, it's, it's, it's literally, you know, let's just sing it. It's never over. It's never over. And yes, that's not real singing, by the way. That's radio singing. There's different singing for singing, singing. My primary role in the world, musician with artist and writer, M-A-W. Ma. So... I'll be doing the music for when it's music time, but right now <laughs> is the point. So thank you for listening. And that's uh, that's all she wrote. I, uh, I see some cool things coming in the horizon. We have a great uh, 13th episode coming with a special return guest uh, as we magic. You'll see uh, more and more great shows coming out. And don't forget, Invisible's Reading Group, 1111.